action in the street is exciting But Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting I've been reading and writing We need to handle our financial situation Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting and passionately Smashing every expectation Every action's an act of creation I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into a brand new episode of Let's Dive Deep. My name is Bradley. My name is Connor. And today we are going to be continuing our deep dive into the hit Broadway musical and pop culture phenomenon, Hamilton. During today's deep dive, we will be focusing on songs four through seven, The Schuyler Sisters, Farmer Refuted, You'll Be Back, and Right Hand Man. As we discuss, we'll be taking into account the Disney Plus version of the musical, the soundtrack, and of course, the experience of seeing Hamilton live. So, no matter where or how you've experienced Hamilton, this is the perfect place for you to be. Before we get started, now is a great time to remind everyone that Let's Dive Deep contains adult content. Now look, we're not going to be excessively rude on this podcast, but I like swearing every once in a while. In, in these songs, there's a murder. That happens, that's adult content. I have a huge crush on Philippa Sue that I might be talking about today. That might be adult content. So, just a warning. Could you put this on a, uh, on in a car full of children? You'll probably be okay. Do I recommend it, though? Absolutely not. Additionally, Let's Dive Deep Hamilton does contain spoilers, and a lot of them. While our focus each episode is a particular number of songs, we will be taking into account the entire musical to add context to everything that we're discussing. If you are enjoying this podcast, you can find other Let's Dive Deep series in your favorite podcatcher. Up to the point of recording this, I have also completed a deep dive into the first season of Bridgerton, and if that might tickle your fancy, you can go into the show notes to find it, or just through your favorite podcatcher, search Let's Dive Deep Bridgerton. And finally, please do not throw away your shot. If you are having a good time, go and leave us those five-star reviews, especially in the Apple Podcast setup whatever that looks like. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Let's Dive Deep and send in your questions and comments to letsdiveDeeppod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Okay, that's all the housekeeping. So we are ready to go. Let's kick back. Let's relax. Maybe grab your beverage of choice if you want. Maybe a tasty, salty snack. And let's dive deep into Hamilton. There's nothing rich folks love more than going downtown and slumming it with the poor. They pull up in their carriages and gawk at the students in the common just to watch them talk. Take Philip Schuyler, the man is loaded. Uh-oh, but little does he know that his daughter's pecky. Angelica Eliza sneaking to the city just to watch other guys. It work, work. Angelica, Eliza, All right, Bradley. So I know you're probably excited to talk about the Schuyler sisters because you're just an excitable person. But 
I, I, I have a little surprise for you. So I want you to just oh indulge okay, me yeah. for a moment, okay? I shall indulge. So now you're Canadian. That's not the surprise. Um, <laughs> but Wait, imagine, like, what? I know. Shit. Yeah, what? just learning. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, Mid 20s. All of a sudden, I'm Canadian. Uh, but no, so you're, you're Canadian, but you love baseball more than any person should. Right, which is typically considered an American game, I think, mostly by most America's people, right? America's favorite pastime. Exactly. I'll clarify. All right. I, I take exception to, I, well, I think what you're implying is that pe- people shouldn't love baseball. I'm not sure that I <laughs> love baseball. It is not in my top echelon of sports. I do frequently watch and enjoy baseball, but I don't love it the same way I love um, like uh, English football, soccer, or hockey. Oh, man. See, you've set me up for this beautifully. Okay. Because what I know, what I know about baseball fans, and I think that this is true about hockey as well, just because of the the number of games played. You don't actually love the sport. What you love are rosters and stats. Well, well, okay. So I want to take you through some Hamilton rosters and stats here real quick. Before we okay, get into, I was about to take exception to that, but now I'm all in. I love, ros- <laughs> I love rosters. That's... There is more to it. There's more I know, to it. I but, know. But if we're talking rosters and stats, I'm all in. You've, you've nailed me to a T here. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy, you know, swinging a bat as well. But okay, so that was just my hook to get into this. So here is, and I think, you know, for anybody listening that's not familiar with the personnel and the success and size of this show this is also going to serve as a kind of primer for that right but i just i wanted to compile some numbers here and i thought that it would tickle your football manager brain here okay so let's start with the roster we know lin-manuel already right we've talked about him a lot just incredible the incredible the myth the legend indeed just Lin-Manuel is all you need to say. Like That's yeah. all you need to say. So the director was Thomas Kale. Music director is Alex Lackamore. Choreographer is Andy Blankenbuehler. The historical consultant was Ron Chernow. That's the, the guy who wrote the biography. Indeed. And then Long he contributed Hamilton, yeah. to writing the play as well. Yeah. And it, uh, from what I can tell, he seemed mostly pretty pleased. Play was produced by Jeffrey Seller. Set designed by David Corrins, costumes by Paul Tazewell, lighting by the late Howell Binkley, one of the true American greats, and sound by Nevin Steinberg. The Broadway. Do you want to know produ- what all those? Oh, sorry. Do you want to know? No, all you those go ahead. Have in common? What's that? Th- they all did a fucking amazing job. They truly did. Continue. I mean, it's just it's a bang up job. Like the design, all of the production for the show is amazing. So the Broadway show debuted at Richard Rogers Theater on July 13th, 2015, okay? Before opening day, before opening... Before people sat in the seats for the first time. It had already made $30 million in pre-sold tickets. (laughs) By September of the same year, yeah, the entire run was almost completely sold. And the show holds the record at $3.3 million for the most ticket sales in one eight-show week. Yes, yeah, so it is eight shows a week. I wrote that in the notes at some point. I'm like, I think they do this eight times a week. 
Yeah, yeah, we do. So like tip, what's uh, kind of common for larger theaters is you'll have Monday off and then you'll go Tuesday through Sunday with two show days, two, two show days. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you do a matinee in the evening? Mm hmm. That's what you do. Yeah. And uh, the, the shorthand for Monday is EDO or equity day off. That's such a hard schedule, man. It is. It's great. I don't even know. I guess it helps with the muscle memory of it all. But other than that, you just must be exhausted. You you sometimes are, but you get your days free. You know how how long is the run of a typical Broadway musical? Until it starts losing money. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point to cut it off. Really and truly, ha- I mean, Hamilton was in Broadway with a like not the the same cast the whole time for at least four or five years straight. Right. Yeah, that's the yeah. thing. I mean, and some shows will run for a decade. You know, um, it just depends on like if there's still demand for it. Um, well, yeah, I it, couldn't see it in New York, right? I did like like I said when I talked about seeing it in in London, I didn't know of Hamilton like what the play was really about, other than I knew of Alexander Hamilton, but I knew about like the cultural zeitgeist of it. Sure, yeah. Right. And I would yeah. have gone to see it in New York and I looked at tickets. You just couldn't go. You just like you either had to buy um secondhand tickets or see it off Broadway. And I wasn't gonna go somewhere off Broadway. If I was gonna make a trip to New York, I would have made the trip to New York. So I wasn't going to go off Broadway. And so it, it just kind of stumbled that I could see it in, in London and still had to buy secondhand tickets. But yeah, it was with, I don't know anything about this stuff. And I, I could have told you it was sold out completely for a very <laughs> long time and made loads of cash. What is the distribution? If you know, like how much are the main cast? It's not a like if so if Hamilton's making loads of cash. Mm-hmm. right how much percentage wise i don't know if anyone really knows the numbers like how much goes to pay for the theater space how much is going to the main cast how much is going to the ensemble is it like an internship type of thing like how does that breakdown work in terms of distributing the the mammoth amounts of money hamilton was able to bring in so the the distribution of profits like most of the people that are going to see like something on the back end in terms of like points on the package right are gonna be the producers um and right so not even the the cast yeah but the cast and the crew are all gonna have well dictated salaries that are governed by union restrictions so like they're they're pretty well taken care of um okay yeah i don't like it's not really um you're not necessarily going to see a lot of additional income if the show is going well but what you are going to get is you're going to start doing commercials and you might get a TV deal and, you know, you're going to get, um, you know, better opportunities after the show. Right. So this well, I is mean, these guys got the Disney Plus deal. That's a separate deal. Yeah. These guys got this a separate contract and they got paid separately to do the Disney Plus version, which is sick because it's just something you're doing anyway. Right. And so they got a separate bit of money for that. Yeah, and that is something that you're going to get uh, royalties on, like every time it's watched, right? That's something that you're going to get royalties on. Um, I'd like to think when Lin-Manuel goes to buy his next bottle of whiskey that I have contributed enough money through royalties watching <laughs> Hamilton to pay for that. It, it must be it must be in the tens of dollars, the royalties I've personally <laughs> given to the cast of Hamilton. Oh, you and me both, buddy. You and me both. Yeah. Okay, so that's the money. Let's talk about 
awards here. All right. This is where it gets insane because I don't know anything about like musical theater awards, and I know that this cast has all of them. This is wild. Okay. The I I've I've abbreviated a little bit just because we've got a lot to talk about, and you and I talk a lot. But anyway, here we go. Off Broadway. Before it opened on Broadway, this is the Off Broadway production. Credit Circle Awards nominated for five, won three. Drama League nominated for three. Drama Desk Awards nominated for fourteen, won eight. Between half. <laughs> between the New York City Drama Critic Circle, Off Broadway Alliance, Theater World, and the Obies, it pulled in another six goddamn awards. Here's the Broadway show, nominated for six Tonys and won eleven bringing it just one behind tying the producers for the most Tonys of any production of all time. Drama League, nominated for three, won two, got the Pulitzer Prize for drama, and the soundtrack (laughs) got the Grammy and the Billboard Award for soundtrack. And uh, the show won, from other smaller organizations, another five awards on top of all that. And then you have all the individual cast awards. Those are included in here, but yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah, cool, yeah. cool. So, so like, not a separate number, gotcha. Yeah, so the, the Tonys, like the 16 uh, Tony nominations include nominations for individual actors. I'm just aggregating the show as a whole, all right? Right, gotcha. Now, here, in doing my research, is, I think, one of the most interesting things I have learned about this show, Okay. So, that, so we've talked about Off-Broadway and Broadway. Let's talk about the tour for just a second. Currently, well, not currently because COVID, COVID. stupid coronavirus, <laughs> but there were two national tours, the Angelica Tour and the Philip Tour. And there the was Phillip a... Philip Tour th- is an interesting pick. It was, yeah, not Eliza. If you're naming um, the tours, the Philip Tour is an interesting name. It is indeed. Now, there's a third pending tour... And the tour's uh, call sign is And Peggy. Not Peggy, And (laughs) Peggy. It's the And Peggy tour, okay? Here's the thing about the tours. They are doing the show on tour full out, just like they do it in one of their residential shows. So just like they do it in New York and Chicago and West End, they're doing the show completely. So they are taking the split concentric revolve on tour because of this. Oh, they're taking that whole, Oh geez. Because of this dude, they built four different sets. So on both the Angelica and Philip tour, while they're performing in one city, the duplicate set is being loaded in, in the next destination. Each tour takes 14 trucks. That's what I get. It's, I put, like, when I wrote up the outline for this originally, I put, like, in the intro, like, pop culture phenomenon, and that's Mm -hmm. exactly what it is. It is a musical that transcends where musicals normally sit in the cultural zeitgeist, or at at the cultural level. Yeah, it's it's lightning in a bottle. I don't know anything about putting a musical together like this. But I understand that building four different sets and taking 14 trucks around, like, that's not normal. That's not a normal thing that happens to every Broadway musical. This is the first time I've ever heard of a national tour doing something like this. 
it may have happened before, but I've never heard of it. Even the Les Mis and Lion King national tours, I I don't think that any of their tour routes had two unique separate sets. This yeah, is I was honestly say maybe Les Mis, maybe, maybe. but. But that, yeah, this is the, only one I this is the first with. time I've heard of it. I just think it's amazing. So between the two existing tours, that's four different sets. I'm curious to learn if that includes the lighting and sound packages as well. And 28 trucks. Well, I think, too, it's one of the musicals where you can't really, like, what do you cut? Like, you want to do a, a paired back production of Hamilton. Where do you, like... Everything is so intricately put together. Mm-hmm. If, if you take one part, if you cut the lighting, if you cut the revolving stage, if you cut whatever, you cut the cost, like pick a thing to cut. It, it ta- like Everything is so intricately put together. You pull one part out and the whole thing kind of falls apart, I think. At least yeah, the, I don't th- in terms of the way I enjoy Hamilton. So it makes sense to me that they're just keeping it all together. Because I don't know how you... I don't know how you keep the musical as iconic as it is and pair it back because it's already so efficient mm-hmm. i'm just not sure how you would even approach that and i don't even know how to do any of this but i just i can't imagine like pairing back on on any of it and, and still having the same effect i agree i think the concentric revolve is essential to the visual identity of the show if you cut that in order to streamline the tour you'd have to re-choreograph a lot of this show a significant portion and it just would not be the same. Yeah. So so now that we've kind of established that Hamilton at, is like this iconic, like it, it's popular at a level that's not normal and it's winning all these awards and doing all these tours. Where does it sit for you as someone who's kind of just straight in the, the musical theater world in terms of your, without giving a ranking, in terms of your favorite or the, the best put together musicals, right? I'm assuming that you know or you've seen <laughs> a great many. Right, where does Hamilton kind of fit for you? Once or twice. Subjectively, it's one of my favorite musicals. Objectively, it is one of the best constructed musicals in our history. It it just is. I mean, from from the page to the stage, everything about it is just well built. It's it's just strong. It's it's just well done. Um, I have musicals that I I love. There's a terrible play called China the Whole Enchilada that I just adore. <laughs> uh, that sounds like it's not as good as Hamilton. No, it's not. But the whole the joke is you, there's a there's a number uh, you can't spell enchilada without C H I N A. Oh China, not Japan, but China. And it's three. It's a quick change act, and it's three guys, and they sing the history of China in an hour and a half. Right. Okay. And it's not good. And it's <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite things in the world. Um, fair, fair enough. So subjectively th- great, objectively terrible. Right. And then there are things like uh, Sweeney Todd, which is objectively a well-built musical. If you look into what makes a good musical, uh, so, uh, like Sweeney Todd is a compelling story, well-delivered. The orchestra- or orchestrations are great. You, it, it will tick all the boxes of what makes a show good. I subjectively can't stand it. You know, so right. it's like, but this is this is one of those shows that for me, I can separate myself from it and say, 
I can tell you the textbook reasons the show is good, but then also I just happen to adore it, right? So it, it goes for me in both camps. Um, yeah, when I was first exposed to it, it was like, oh, this is this will be remembered as one of the objectively greatest musicals ever made. Yeah, it's it's I I, I said it last. I, I don't know where the bad part is. That's just enough for me. Like if I can't point to your work and go, that's the bad part. That that part was lesser than the other bits, right? With a book, like I could have done without that chapter or that chapter. Like I don't know where that is in mm-hmm. Hamilton. And yeah. to me, that's 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 how you know, at least for me, who doesn't know a lot about this, that you have something as a casual viewer at first of Hamilton. The fact that I can't sit there and go that part that part was below the other parts, even if it was still amazing, right? Everything just fits so well that I, I it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, and I would make the argument that producers of theater straight and musical theater there's nothing less noble about getting that reaction from laymen than there is getting that reaction from people that are in the industry right appreciation and is appreciation i think that your your reaction to the show as much as you talk about not being in the know or not in the business whatever it doesn't matter what matters is that it did spark something in you it did make you love it right and i think that that's that's just as valuable, arguably more valuable than a critic thinking that it's objectively good because we wouldn't tell these stories if we didn't have somebody to listen to them, right? So like I was just going to say, like people like me are the people buying the tickets. Yeah. Right? Like, and not every show of Hamilton can be sold out by theater experts and critics. You have, to, you have to sell your show to people who are predisposed to liking musicals, but that aren't super involved with them or understand them fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as much as, um, you know, I appreciate what I do for a living and hope to continue doing it, I'm on the design side of things, but really all you need for a play or performance, whatever, is someone to tell a story and someone to hear it, you know? So the audience, if you, if you take things down to brass tacks to the, like the raw fundamentals of what this is as an art form, the audience comprises 50% of it, right? So yeah. Of course you're important. Not as important as the Schuyler sisters, but very important. No, no, definitely not as important as them. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> shall we shall we yeah, transition? I, I appreciate I you indulging actually, me. I, sh- I suppose we should actually talk about the four songs. <laughs> I know. I guess we should. I know I, it was risky. Because we're we're already windbags to begin with, but I want I just I I was excited. I had to oh, share dude, with you. I you know that I would sit here and talk about Hamilton for eight hours <laughs> and then try and cut it into two. I'm I'm I will indulge anytime. All right, that let's just, talk about the Skylar sisters. That would just be abusive to our two listeners. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're here, as you so eloquently put last episode, we're meeting the girls team. The girls (laughs) team are here. We get introduced to them. That's definitely not why I cut the songs where I did, but that's what I'm going to say, or that's why I'm going to say I I cut the songs where where I did. The Skylar Sisters gives us the introduction to our, our female characters. It fleshes out Burr's character a little bit. It shows us people that are in... 
um, New York City that are daughters of a, a wealthy person there who supports the the revolution and and from there we kind of just get this really fun introduction with Burr so what are your what are your initial kind of impressions of this introduction of the Skylar sisters the energy here is almost vertical that's my my first impression this song coming out of story of tonight signifies to me that we are in a new chapter of the story they I even really have do- that remix at the beginning like it starts the little drum and then the the remix going into it to really separate it from where we just came from. Absolutely. They add that little bit to to really turn you from the story of tonight. Then there's a little like turntable remix into the Skylar Sisters to separate it in that way. Mm-hmm. And supporting that is bringing Burr back, not as character Burr, but narrator Burr, right? So we we remind you of that idea. So. When when Burr is in his narrator mode, to me, that's a signifier that we're in either a moment of transition or a moment of pivotal drama. And here it does like say, okay, we're in we're in a new mode here. And I think that these four songs uh, that that we're doing today, uh, I'm I'm going to talk a lot about how they work and don't work together but they they kind of like if you want to if you were to name this chapter right i would call it the transition into revolution absolutely for sure we've kind of we've kind of set it up with the first four songs but now we are actually getting into the thick of it and it starts here so that percussive aggressive chapter break with the remix and the aggressive snare hits and then Burr coming in with the narration, with the burration. I think it really helps, you know? Yeah, I have a quick comment on Burr's narration. Burr's narration, ever since we really started talking about last episode, like, look, Burr, you're a smart guy. Is there really nothing rich folks love more than slumming it with the poor? What are you talking about? Surely, if I'm a rich person in this society, there's a lot of things I love. I love going to my huge-ass garden, (laughs) sipping a whiskey, and just, just, like sitting under a sunset or something i don't what are you talking about sorry i just that line always gets me i'm like there's nothing rich folks love more than going downtown and slumming it with the poor nothing zero burr come on this i mean number one yeah it's hyperbolic to be sure but i but i think that's intentional there's a and i'm i'm blanking on the comedian i'm just being facetious but there's no i mean it's it's funny though like you're being you're being accurately funny here but i think God, I cannot remember who it was, but there's a great stand-up performance about how funny it is that white people camp because it's just like <laughs> you have enough money to go out into the woods and pretend to be homeless and poor. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a, Yeah, I've seen that. I can't remember who it is, but I have seen that now that you're mentioning it. Yeah, for sure. You have enough money to go and, and pretend to, to not have anything. Mm-hmm. But you can also, I mean, you can also see this referenced in you know, people around NYU with all the money in the world, they, they want to go down and, and hang out with the Bohemians in the, in the poorer parts of town because they think it makes them cool. Right. Um, like this is, this trend has not ended. Um, and you see this with, you know, uh, the, the Hiltons and the Kardashians, you know, wearing as boho chic shit as they possibly can because (laughs) they want to look cool and rugged and sure, poor, fair enough. Yeah. You know? 
absolutely. That's but, an yeah. interesting perspective. I just every time I hear that line, I'm always like, "Come on, you're smarter than that." Like, there's got to be something they love more. But now that you mention it, maybe not. Maybe he's right. I I I take this line as a condemnation of the wealthy uh, at this point in Burr's uh, life, right? And I think that the presence here speaks to Burr's duplicitousness because this song opens with a critique of the wealthy and then he tries to pick one of them up. Well, and well right? saying he's a trust fund baby. Like he's mm-hmm. not poor. Burr's not a poor person. He's not no. Skylar wealthy, but he's not, he's doing okay. He's fine. No, he's, he's got dead parents money. Yeah, he's good. He's okay. Yeah, he's fine, right? But for but this is that's the thing. He is he's he's Yanis. He is a man of two faces this whole show. And this is another instance of playing both sides. I'm going to critique the wealthy with the audience so that I'm endearing to you. I know you already spent a lot of money on the ticket and your $10 beer. So I am making fun of the wealthy, but then I'm going to try to pick one of them up and also uh you can trust in me. I'm a trust fund baby. And, and he's not, and like you said, uh, he's not doing bad. He's well off. His costume design reflects it. Well, that's what I, that's where I'm, that's all I'm going on. It's, it's just what the play is telling me. I have no idea if Burr was actually well off in real life, right? It's just like from the costuming and the way he positions himself and the way he's like confident enough to go up and, and have that interaction with Angelica. I can intuit that he's a wealthy guy or he's doing okay. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, he's a college graduate and he's a lawyer, right? So we imagine that he's doing okay. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I also think, too, with this introduction to the the Skylar sisters, it's interesting. I'm going to talk a lot about it as we go through the 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 song about how the, the way it's choreographed in the costuming keeps them very similar. So you understand their sisters, but also very different. And that kind of starts with with Angelica and Eliza just through their choreography, through their lines, like kind of being into the idea of the revolution, not fully on board with it. Like they're active members, but like they're seeing the pamphlets. Lawrence is going around handing out the pamphlets, which is a lovely touch. And they're mm-hmm. reading them and they're like, hmm, this sounds cool. And then, and then, and Peggy shows up, which mm-hmm. is a brilliant piece of writing. And Peggy is there to be kind of the avatar, the cautious avatar. Like, Hey, daddy told us not to come downtown. It's bad enough. He wants to go to war. She's the one, because you can't just have all these people running into war willy-nilly. Somebody has to be there to be like, hey, wait a minute. Like like the, the sister version of Burr, in a way. Like, hey, wait a minute, right? Don't don't put all your eggs in this one basket too quick here. And so what what do you make of that interaction early on between the three sisters? Because by the end of the song, they're all, they're all kind of in on the revolution, and Peggy's back kind of doing what everyone else is doing. But early on, she's the one separating a little bit and saying, hey, Angelica, Eliza... Slow down, because you might get into trouble here. Yeah, slow down, but not don't do this at all. You know, there's a duality here comparing the girls' team and the boys' team. You can you can see Peggy as almost a cautious female version of Burr, but she never says, don't do this. She just says, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's Burr-esque and in a way. It's Burr-esque, but it's less, right? So So, but here we have, I... You know, it's it's hard to it's hard to find a lot of narrative impact and narrative value in Peggy because she's intentionally written 
as a meme. I'm sorry. Like of the of the Skylar children, she she married a wealthy husband and eventually kind of disappeared from history. She's not really and she disappears from the show too, you'll realize. Like she just disappears. And so and Peggy is is a bit of a meme in the writing of the show, but she does still serve the function of influencing how we see at Burr. She is at least open to the idea of revolution. She is at least open to the idea of Angelica and Eliza getting what they want and what they think is going to be best for all of them involved, right? That's not to say that she's a purely functional character or that she serves as just purely to to inform us about Burr. I think she also informs us about Angelica and Eliza because she is one of the Schuyler sisters. And their presence on stage together lets us know that family is of utmost importance, right? We're introduced to them first by talking about family. And, and I think that that pays off well later on in the show. Yeah, the, the, the family connections definitely pay off, especially when we get to act number two, but mm-hmm. also she's the she's the foil. She serves she's in the show for a reason. She serves that purpose here. And the the line and Peggy is so brilliant to me. I can imagine how this I have so much headcanon about how this play was written. I can imagine <laughs> Lynn Manuel was sitting in a room and someone's like, So how are you gonna introduce the Skylar sisters? And he's like, Well, wait, you're good. this is gonna be a brilliant idea here. I'm gonna have all three of them on the stage and they're just gonna say their name. And the guy was like, Whoa, wait a second, that sounds a little boring. Are you sure that's going to land well with the audience? He's like, but I'm going to slightly adjust the cadence so everyone laughs at Peggy. And it hits. It's like you add one word and adjust the cadence. And all of a sudden it just goes from someone saying only their name to a very endearing and funny introduction to these characters. It like the subtlety of this musical is always present, but you, you, you took a three word thing, added one word. And in four words, it's the efficiency in four words, not only do you know which Skylar sister is which, which you need to know, but it's also funny and endearing and, and allows you to just enjoy what you're watching even more than you already are. It's, it's masterfully crafted to be as efficient as possible while also not losing any of the steam that the, the musical has picked up up until this point. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a little inside baseball, maybe just like a, you know, a show folk watching a show, but you can tell that the actor playing Peggy is having a ball delivering that line. Oh, the it's second like, time specifically. Like the first time when she's being dragged, it's really funny. But the next yeah. time when she pops up in between the two, you could she she looks forward to that. You can see yeah. that whole the whole the whole song. She's like, I'm waiting for that moment. Absolutely, you can tell that that she, as a professional, knows how well that lands. And it needs to because, like I said, without that landing, you just have three characters just saying their name, and it's mm-hmm. part of the song. And I'm sure it'd be fine. Right, but it, it's it's that extra word and the change of the cadence that makes it go from like exposition to to funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she yeah, you can tell she looks forward to it, but she delivers it at least in the Disney Plus version in- incredibly. Yeah, I think it's I think it's brilliant. Uh, what do you think of Burr trying to pick up Angelica? I I don't think that he ever had any chance. I don't no, know why I, he's trying. I don't think okay. I don't think he has a chance. But shoot your shot, guy. <laughs> right? Like, why not? Shoot your shot. They're slumming downtown with the poor. You're there for whatever reason. This whole introduction, 
So I have, I have lots of thoughts about Burr in, in this song. Mm-hmm. First, I, I think Burr, like, I, I, I think just fundamentally, I'm like, hey, shoot your shot. Go try and try and pick up one of the Skylar sisters. Fine. Later, when he's talking about that they're reliable with the ladies, I think it tracks. I think it's part of his character. When it comes mm-hmm. to the war, he's a little two-faced and, and trying to play both sides. But when it comes to women, he's a little more confident. I think that tracks as well. When you talk about women later, up until um, Alexander's wedding, when he's trying to hide his, his mistress or however mm-hmm. you want to interpret her, up until that point, right, there are still more times we get with Burr in this play where he's just like, he's kind of like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. Like, fuck boy? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know well, what the Well, I, you know, I interpret if if the word mistress is at all applicable here, Burr is Theodosia's mistress. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. flip that like, on its I, head. Absolutely. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if coming on to Angelica here is genuine. I wonder if he needs a famous, noteworthy cover story to just dis- distract attention away from his relationship with Theodosia. That could be it as well. I think he comes in a little too hot. I'm not an expert in kind of 19th century or late 18th century kind of dating etiquette or mm-hmm. strategies, but I think he comes in a little too hot. I think I think coming in and being like, excuse me, miss, I know it's not funny, but your perfume smells like your daddy's got money is the wrong approach Absolutely. for someone as headstrong as Angelica. It's mm-hmm. not a good it's not a good way to do it if that's if that's what you're going for. Yeah, there's some severe, creepy Barney Stinson vibes here, for sure, and it's delivered well, right? I didn't, I don't, I don't watch it and go like, "Oh, Burr, what a creep." Mm-hmm. I go, I watch it, and I go, "Burr, yeah, that was not not a good look, not a good look for our guy Burr, but not not the end of the world." He shot his shot. He was terrible at it. It didn't go. And Angelica says, "Burr, you disgust me." And since mm-hmm. Burr's the narrator. Right, you know he put that in there. You know Burr's putting that in there, so we know. Like, hey, look, she she did like that was mean what she said about me, right? Yeah. And so I and, uh oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say I think the Burr you disgust me, and then Burr's not even thrown by that. He's like, ah, so you've disgusted me. I'm a trust fund baby. <laughs> like he's not even that's the confidence around women, right? Misguided or not, he's not even thrown by that. Yeah, you can give him some credit there too. It may be thinking, "Oh, you're looking for intellect." Okay, I'm going to I'm going to take what you said, flip it, reverse it, put it back on you, you know, and I'm going to engage in some wordplay with you to show you that I'm smart. Yeah, and we should establish that too cuz that comes before it, it's established that um Eliza says like, "Remind me what we're looking for," and Angelica's like, "A mind at work." That's what they're mm-hmm. out there kind of again, like why are they is this where the rich women, I, you know what, I guess this is where they found Hamilton at some point, but like, is this how it works? Like, I, I always imagined it being more of like a hus- like your dad kind of finds a husband for you. Not that you're slumming in the cities in your fancy heels or however, and then Burr just walks up. I, I never interpreted that as how, how it would work. Um, but yeah, Burr doesn't do a great job here at all. Angelica Headstrong says he discussed her, and I, I think that was good from Angelica. I liked it. I agree. I think that that's exactly what she should say. You know, he doesn't have in this moment, he doesn't have the propriety uh, of these formal meetings that we have seen elsewhere in the show and we'll see further on. 
Now, as to what the Schuyler sisters are actually doing there, there is, it's worth pointing out this idea of whether or not Burr is actually a reliable narrator. Oh, I have so many takes, especially in the last song <laughs> about Burr's right? narration. Right? Absolutely not. My opinion is that he's absolutely, he's like the R2-D2. I don't know if you've heard of the like, R2-D2 narrates Star Wars. I in I invented that theory. There I, you go. So and he's then, like, he's and then like, like five years later, I see it on the internet. I'm like, oh man, someone he's, stole my thing. So Burr is the same narrator as R2-D2 is when they're like stuck yeah. in the net. And R2-D2 has to, like, get his pizza cutter out to cut the net when the Jedi could, like, Luke has a lightsaber, <laughs> right? Like, that's R2-D2 yep. just telling the story, like, and this Jedi I'm with in the net sucked, <laughs> and he couldn't get us out of the net, so I had to save us. That's Burr. Burr's telling the story kind of how it happened, but it, there's definitely, so he's not a reliable narrator, at least to Absolutely. me. Maybe people maybe people watch this and and... And tracking his narration, like he's not. By the end, he's not even trying to be. By the end, it's just him telling you how he feels about it. But I, I don't perceive him as a reliable narrator. Especially, I, I want to talk about it when we get to the the meeting with him, Washington and Hamilton. I have a whole head cannon about how Burr's changing that. Oh, I want to hear it. Let's 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 get to it. I mean, we still have we have some things to cover in this song, but I'm looking forward to that for sure. Yeah, I, I, it, he's not a. To me, he's not a. Uh, uh, not a reliable narrator at all. Yeah, I just I re- yeah I don't I don't know if this is an accurate description slash critique of what they're doing. I think this is a dig, uh, and and going for going for some humor. Um, it's just it's it's curious that once again we open up with Burr just to have the focus taken from him again. I mean, the the narrative construct, and this is not to say that the Skylers don't deserve their due, that they don't deserve the focus on them here, because they they certainly do. And they deliver an amazing performance, and it's important that we understand what they're about for the rest of the story to actually function. But it's, I feel, I feel bad for Burr, because once again, we open the song with him, and then the focus is, is taken again. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any qualms about the guy giving the focus to a girl at all if it wasn't like happening to Burr all the time. I'm not saying that I necessarily pity him that much. I'm just saying it's curious that it keeps happening. Yeah, do you, so this is where this is where the reliable narrator thing becomes uh, something you got to figure out. Does Burr want us to feel that way? Does Burr is Burr like? And I came to the city, and I was trying to pick up this woman, and then she cut me off, and then her and her sisters just started dancing around and singing a song, and then she said she was disgusted by me, and that's like that when if you're trying to figure out the the narrator, maybe that's how Burr wants us to interpret it. Like, hey, I keep coming up with all these good points, and I keep being the star of the show, and these people keep taking it away from me. Yeah, for sure. This is this is his Pierce Morgan and Meghan Markle. Oh, for moment. sure. Absolutely. That's exactly what it's like. That's exactly what it's like. Um there's a few more things here in our in our notes. Um one of the things that I I really want to talk about especially from kind of like a behind the scenes kind of how to construct a, a musical point of view is the choreography and the costumes they give to the the sisters. 
Because mm-hmm. one of the things that helped me do the first time I watched this as a new viewer who didn't really know a lot about the the musical is that obviously they do it in like non-subtle ways where you have the sisters all in a similar looking dress, but it's a very different color. So you mm-hmm. can point out like, oh, the pink one's Angelica and that's easy. But the way the whole song is choreographed, you always have the sisters doing very similar bits of choreography but with little bits of different, like these little head bobs, the, the ways they put their hands in front of their mouth, the ways they kind of slide back and forth with their dresses. They're very similar, but they, they're, they're different enough based on who's the center of attention right now, who's the one actually singing, that it, it really helps clarify things for the audience. And I just wanted to get, like from your perspective, how does that relate to constructing it? Like how important is that to this song? the choreography and the costumes here to really help separate the sisters. And like the way the choreography is done too helps with the vibe. Like they're kind of head bobbing and moving around most of the song. And we'll contrast that later with how the sisters start with the ensemble. Um, when the, when Admiral Howe or General Howe has troops on the water later. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So how, how does the costuming and the choreography work for you? Cause for me, it does wonders in, in bringing this song to life and helping us understand it as an audience. Well, that's almost asked and answered, right? Because you just you just said that like how all of this does the job for you as a viewer, but I can talk about the actual techniques at play here because I think that they're very very clever. Uh what's what's going on here with the costumes is that the the sisters are unified in terms of line and form and it's the the color you mention that still breaks them out as individual characters. But in the context of the the overall stage picture, we understand that they are unique and they are separated from the ensemble. And in my opinion, what really does it for me is, first of all, the, the line and form that I mentioned, because they have the bustle. You can tell that they can spend a little bit more on clothing than the ensemble that's on stage. They have multiple under and over garments, right? So this also suggests that they have help dressing every morning. So that informs us to their station as well. And the another thing that 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 may gun, go unnoticed maybe, but I think is crucial is that their clothes have a bit of a sheen to them. And this further helps break them out from the ensemble because they they are different. And for me, when I see sheen on stage, oftentimes when everybody else is in matte textures, uh, I, in my mind, I intuit that as new. I intuit that as high tech. I intuit that as plastic, flashy. This is the new age. This is tomorrow, right? And and on stage, everybody else is in um, flat fabrics and and they have a bit of a shine to them. And so you understand that Angelica wants a revelation. She's different. And so I think the the contrast between the three of them and the ensemble is is really well done in the costuming there. As to the the choreography, uh this, you know, uh, there's multiple clever things that are done in this song. And some of them are subtle. I guarantee you I didn't notice them the first time that I watch them. I mean, some of the choreography to me is very reminiscent of destiny's child, 
pussycat dolls. Uh, you just you have this idea of in this song there there are times where Angelica has the lead and her sisters are backing her up, um, you know, and then you know you but you have a trade off like maybe Kelly might take the lead from Beyonce every now and again, but there's also and and you were the one that pointed this out. Uh, dancing book guy is amazing. Oh, I was just gonna say and we can't leave this song without talking about dancing book guy because this we guy have is to, awesome. He is amazing. First of all, he is just I'm sorry, like he is a just bomb rocking good dancer. I I, like, I, I, I can't am, imagine what he what he first thought when someone came, like when the choreographer and the music director and everyone came back and said, "Hey, you're gonna have to do you have you have ten seconds, maybe less." at center stage in front of the whole audience and you're going to dance you're going to like almost like break dance and your only prop is this book make it work mm-hmm. and he like it stands out it's funny but you pointed out in the notes too it serves a purpose it does i really i i really do love this choreography because most of his moves are with his hands leading holding the book and this is a song about ideas this is a song about a struggling intellectual who feels left over by society because she's a woman who is looking for someone that is challenging and stimulating. She does not care what you're packing. She wants to know what you think. And then in the middle of this number, this is one of two choreography moves that I think is, is brilliant. His actions are led by the book. Just like the the climate change in society, just like the revolution was being led by ideas, just like her desires are led by ideas. I think it is just be, beyond this guy being just an absolute powerhouse dancer. It's really good choreography. It, it's just it's some really good stuff. And what's great is it's good on both levels. Like it, I didn't notice a lot of the the book leading the, the the choreography or any of that stuff. So it works like whether you're a casual viewer or you're noticing that stuff. Like it's either funny and just a nice touch, or it means a lot. And it, however you want to interpret it is there. But mm-hmm. no matter no matter who you are watching this, it fits. It doesn't feel out of place. Yeah, absolutely. The second choreography thing I want to hit here is I think this is the first time in a musical I have seen what I consider to be a pun in choreography. When you said that, I I remember writing, I even had, I'm looking at the notes, like I put in parentheses, this is blowing my mind. (laughs) Well, like they, when they're singing, look around, look around, the revolve is going. And so everyone is quite literally dancing and looking around. And this is a, this is reminiscent of how the lyrics have turned words on end. And now we're doing it split between the lyric and the choreography. It is so cheeky. I adore it. I just absolutely love it. It's brilliant, man. Yeah, and it's another it's 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 another kind of example that illustrates like which part of this musical do you take out if you want to pair it back? Because these little things, like a lot of the things that someone can express, a lot of people feel subconsciously, mm-hmm. right? They might not know they noticed them, but they definitely did notice them. It was still part of the experience, and it, it's another one of those really subtle things that I didn't notice it as a pun. But if you had taken it away, if it wasn't there, it would have felt weird. It's still, I don't know how to put that. It's kind of like a hazy thought that I'm trying to put into words. But 
even if you don't notice it's a pun, and it's very funny now that you've mentioned it, it still fits what, what the song is going for, and you can't really take it out. You can't. Even if you don't intellectually think about it as a pun, it does fit. There's a circular feeling to the choreography that also fits with the repeated look around, look around, because subconsciously for most people, repetition can imply revolution, right? And there's a pun there as well, because a show about a revolution is on a split revolve, right? So there's a lot of cheek in these design elements. And so if you take one of them away, if you take one of these staging elements away, then the show is going to be weaker for it. And this is an instance of the choreography being crucial to what's happening now. Absolutely. Um, I think that's all I got for this song. And I know I want to stress this right now. There are so many points of all of these songs that I, I love to remember and talk about in a podcast. I can't immortalize every thought and feeling <laughs> I have about Hamilton. So I'm sure we'll get to the end of the podcast. Like, oh, I wish I mentioned this thing. But I think for now, that's all that I have for the, the Skylar sisters. Was there anything else in there that's really, um, really something you want to you wanna chat about? Yeah, there's, there's one thing, but it also segues into farmer refuted oh, perfect, um, and 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 i agree with you there's there's gonna be stuff that that gets yeah. I, I think yeah, we should have some not, le- it's not we should have a leftovers episode for sure all the things we wish we talked it's not for the audience yeah. it's not for like lack of wanting to record it it's just a lack of just not bringing it up or forgetting to bring it up or forgetting to put it in the notes or you don't notice it until after we've recorded this episode Right, mm-hmm. like it's not oh, for yeah, it's absolutely. not because we're like on a strict time limit here. Um, but that's that's what like I got to the end of the last one and there was a few things I was like, oh, I wish I'd mentioned that as I was editing it. Um, yeah. So if we don't mention your favorite thing, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's that's why there's an email address. So you that's use exactly that. why there's an email address, and then we fix it. So about my my last thing with this song is is the musical composition itself. And also taking into context, like these four songs that we're doing today. Um, so I think I don't know. Maybe I I th- I think we take a little break and then talk about that, and then transition into Farmer Refuted, and uh, you'll be back as a piece. What do you think? I think that sounds like a wonderful idea. We will see awesome. you all on the other end of this little jingle for The Farmer Refuted. All right, so we are here with The Farmer Refuted and You'll Be Back. Uh, These songs are kind of of a piece, so we're going to tackle them together, and we're going to start off with the musical composition. Yeah, and I do want to tip our toes back into Skylar Sisters a little bit because these four songs together while thematically connected into that that idea being the transition into revolution, they're musically diverse to the point of being, you know, as I've titled my notes for these four uh, songs, the schizophrenic episode, right? Because uh, starting with Skylar Sisters, we have this energy coming into it and we have this almost a, this combination of Destiny's Child and Empire State of Mind right and then this song farmer refuted is a 
duet over a chamber orchestra. And then with You'll Be Back with The King, it's like a Beatles song. And then once we get into Right Hand Man, we are on a DMX album. It's like you know, a Beatles we, song. It it is, but it, I th- it is, but but I, I think it's it, I think though. it's important to to like I think I think it's intentional, right? Um, so here's so there's there's a concept in in musical composition called leitmotif, which is the repetition of musical themes that identify with either characters, objects, or ideas. Right, so, characters, objects, ideas. Right. Yeah, yeah. And usually when people want to sound smart t- talking about leitmotif, they'll talk about Wagner's ring cycle. And there, you know, you have a, a musical theme for the god of war, and then you have a musical theme for the helmet of invisibility. And every time these characters or objects are on stage, uh, there there are different musical themes that play. Hamilton, the show, does this. It does this with, uh, I imagine death so much it seems more like a memory. When's it going to get me? That's repeated. There right, are music, yeah. you know, it does this with bump, ba da da ba da right? Lots of repetition, lots of callbacks. Throughout Absolutely. The whole, throughout the whole musical. Throughout the whole musical, exactly. So that's traditional leitmotif. But Hamilton also employs an unconventional form of leitmotif that I find equally interesting, if not more so. Hamilton does leitmotif by genre. And we have particular genres associated with particular characters. And coming out of this late 90s electric energy of the Schuyler sisters that is then referenced again uh, during Winter's Ball and Helpless, Satisfied. Uh, That, it feels like, I mean, there, I mean, we'll talk about this when we get to it, but there are parts of uh, those songs that sound just like Beyonce's Countdown to me. Anyway, so we get we get out of that into this very traditional mode with Sam Samuel Seabree. This and guy's awesome. I love this guy. He's great. He's a great actor. But you know, Seabree was a bishop that did not want the states to revolt. This interchange person to person never happened. It was a series of articles and letters that they were writing at each other. Um but because he has traditional ideas and hip hop has always been the music of revolution, he can't rap. So we have to go back into this traditional mode, right? And then we have to double down on that traditional mode. We have to go back to the, we have to stay in the old world with the king. And so I, I find that this transition from Schuyler Sisters into A Farmer Refuted is important because it is so striking. Because this is all small, strings, conventional, and old-fashioned. We're no longer in the language of revolution. We're no longer in hip-hop. We are in gringo town, right? And and we're doing it on purpose. Um, And I think that that shift is very important because as soon as we get into right-hand manned, we are back into the world of revolution and back into the world of very energetic hip hop. 
It also helps, I think, really contrast the the characters from each other. The the person Samuel Seabury here, who's portrayed as the one who's who's not for the revolution, is somebody who's I don't know, just the 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 score, I guess, of, of this song. His is a lot more kind of refined and strict and it's long and it's drawn out. It's very, like you said, old fashioned. And then it, it draws a large contrast from the lads who are kind of off in the back laughing while he's doing this, who we just saw like banging on the, the last time we saw these guys, they were like banging on tables and drinking and talking about four sets of corsets and all that type of stuff. Right. So even just from a character level, the last time we saw Hamilton's friends, they're the exact opposite as this guy. They have the exact opposite view, but they also are portrayed exactly the opposite in terms of how they act. He's even the way he stands, like he's very straight up tall, feet together on a little pedestal to make himself look taller. Right. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's like a statue in a way where everyone else is like swinging their arms around and like throwing their drinks in there. And it it draws the contrast between the characters as well as the the point of view. Yeah, I love it. I agree with you completely. The contrast is stark and I, I, I don't know if they could have done a better job. Also, he's, you know, the actor himself is fairly pale. Uh, if my memory serves, oh, right? He's, so we, he's white as a ghost. Yeah, so we have like some really good othering uh, there with with the casting of that part, um, because he does he does feel a little bit disconnected um, from the people of color present in the majority of the cast, right? Sure, um, absolutely. I, yeah. I think it was an effective choice there as well, and he just he also. Between uh, the costumes, HMU, and the casting, he just looks a bit foppish. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. He's like, I don't want to use like, I don't want to use like grade three or like ten year old, eight year old, whatever age that is, like bullying playground terms. But much like we we saw the lads last podcast, and I was like, they just think Burr is like a loser. They just mm-hmm. think Burr, he's like a loser, and he's in his books, and we're the cool guys, and that's kind of the vibe I'm getting. It's the exact same here. This guy, the second he starts talking, you're like, oh, he's just a loser. Like, all mm-hmm. of our friends are so cool, and this guy is so not cool. And I don't want to get, like, too mean girls about it, but that's kind of, that's I think that's what they're going for. Right, because they, the people who like Lin Manuel and everyone's making this play, you're meant to be with Hamilton and on his side. So portraying these other people who are not on his side, especially when we contrast it with the king, because the king is is very kind of aggressive <laughs> and terrifying later. Right, he's mm-hmm. a legitimately terrifying character, and so to start with somebody on the other side that's just like a bit of a dork. Right, he's got his scroll and he's reading his lines and he's just telling everyone how the Congress does not speak for him and all that. Like, get the get out of here, right? But mm-hmm. then the king comes later and you're like, oh shit, this guy maybe has the right idea. Maybe this guy, maybe this guy is picking the right people to mess with and not messing with the king. So I, I think it's a very effective choice to make this guy. I don't want to use the word loser because it's not the right word, but he's kind of like a loser and a dork and a I don't know. I don't think that we have to say that he's a loser and a dork. I think what we can say is that we're we're shown that he's not a greaser like our four horsemen, right? Like he's, there, he's that's he's not a greaser. Yeah, that's the right word. Yeah, you know, we can just we we don't have to say that he is a nerd. We can say that he's not 
in the in crowd, you know, much like Burr isn't, right? He's he's othered further than Burr, though. I mean, oh, yeah, he's that's... even he, to these guys, he's w- even worse than Burr. Mm-hmm. Burr's like a cool guy who's just like a little shady on his opinions and is in his book sometimes. Yeah. Right. But like this guy is actually like, we don't want anything to do with him at all. Yeah, for sure. I love that you mentioned him reading from the scroll because the inclusion of the prop there is a efficient way to show how this guy may be a little bit nervous. So he's reading this off of this parchment. And then Mulligan, which I think is so sweet, he tells Hamilton, you tear tear this guy apart. You're the one to do it. Uh, The the interaction here between the friends is some of my favorite interaction in the whole musical. It's hilarious. Like, watch this again. If you only watch this once, or you, like, watch this again. Don't even look at the guy with the scroll, Samuel Seabury. Just look at, like, the lads. Because their microphones are turned off for the parts that they don't sing. But they are laughing and telling jokes and like pushing Hamilton towards this guy. And when Hamilton turns around, they push him back over there. Like they're, it, it's such an endearing, charming part of this song that the lad, like Hamilton, like, you know, Hamilton's not getting out of here without this confrontation. Cause even if he tries, his friends are going to keep him going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he does keep going. That's one of the interesting things about this scene in, in my opinion and Hamilton's role in it without an equivalent prop because he's ad-libbing he's doing it off the top of his head at the inspiration of or at the encouragement of his buddies and so it's an opportunity for us the audience to see him as brilliant freewheeling he can ad-lib he can make this up right he doesn't have to pre-prepare like Seabury does so we see him as better right I think I think it's efficiently and cleverly done. I also this song it, it's not a, this is one of those songs too that I think if you were to if you were to try and pick Hamilton apart and say which one's the bad part this is the type of song you'd pick but it's so it's so important that you can't single it out and one of the reasons why is I think for me this is one of the first times where so far we've had Hamilton and Burr kind of talking the talk about how different they are but this is the first time where they're now walking the walk. Right, mm-hmm. this guy is out here. Mm-hmm. He's on his thing. He's got his scroll. He is clearly like Congress does not speak for me. Chaos and bloodshed, all that stuff. He's with the king. Hamilton confronts this guy at the encouragement, hilariously of Hercules Mulligan at first, but he confronts this guy and Burr steps in later to call him off. Like Hamilton, please, like stop. It's they're now walking the walk, and now they've shown like Hamilton is ready to address this confidently and says as much. Like I'd rather be divisive than indecisive. And Burr is now walking the walk, playing both sides. Like he's like, leave this guy alone, let him do his thing. Like he's not bothering anyone. And so I think it's the first moment when we when we go later, and Burr's all pissed off later in the in the musical about how much more successful Hamilton is, or how much more successful he interprets Hamilton to be. This is the first moment for me where you can see their paths diverging to that point. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that that goes or that starts approaching your thoughts on I'd rather be divisive than indecisive, you know, because Hamilton is, uh, he is starting to declare, I'm ready to make a decision. I'm ready to go. And it's the and greater he, risk. He, yeah. It's the but greater puts, risk and he gets the greater reward. Like it, It's a more bold position and a more risky position for sure. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the, 
historical context of this back and forth being uh, presented in this way? I I mean, so 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 with regards to how it's portrayed in the play, I don't know about the accuracy of a lot of this stuff. So mm-hmm. just within the musical, I think it's it's a it's another brilliant and different way to get across quite a bit of exposition here. We needed somebody kind of like um, Peggy was in the last song, somebody to be the foil, right? Mm-hmm. If Hamilton is going to be divisive uh, instead of indecisive, you need someone on the other side who, who's kind of stuck there too so we can see what the difference is. Um, I think it, I think it's well done. I don't have a lot to speak on the accuracy of it all. I, I think it's a really clever way to take some exposition that we need about kind of how the two sides are, are kind of staking their claims before this war kicks off in just a couple of songs. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, I think it's very cleverly done. I think it's like, I'm someone who really doesn't like exposition. If it's too on the nose, I talked about that last episode mm-hmm. um, and I don't feel it at all. I think it's, I think it's amazing. And I think, What's amazing is the back and forth because they're not just repeating things to each like part. Like it's the way this is kind of sung by each of the characters. Parts of it are they're saying whole lines together. Parts of it are someone's taking the end word of one sentence and then starting their sentence with that same word at the same time, but going off in a different direction. Like the back and forth, it's it's identical in terms of the it's even, right? They're each getting like an even amount of lines here, but mm-hmm. in terms of the the way they're going back and forth, it's it keeps you hooked and interested, right? They're not they're not going back and forth in a traditional way where Seabury says a few things and Hamilton responds, right? It's very congested and clustered and and parts of it are they're just talking over one of each other, some of them they're picking off uh picking up where the others left off, and it's a very clever way to keep me hooked and engaged because I don't know what the next line is going to bring. It's another big mm-hmm. surprise for me. It's, it's, it's exquisitely done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the almost polyrhythmic quality to when they diverge from each other and then come back to link up for a couple words or a phrase is intriguing, to say the least. It yeah, really and the way Hamilton is making a point, like he, they're both trying to make their point. Right, Samuel Seabury is trying to make the point that the king is better and chaos and bloodshed are bad and all of that. And Hamilton is trying to be like, uh, nah, why should a tiny island across the sea tax tea and all that? So, right? so they're mm-hmm. each trying to make their point. But Hamilton's also like playing this up for his buddies. Right? And he, when he looks back, there's a few different lines. But like when he goes back, he's like, is he in Jersey? Like That's just for his friends. Mm-hmm. He's still out mm-hmm. there. Like he's, he's still trying to impress these people and be part of this friend group. Right, so he's trying to make a point and be popular with his friend group, and so it's it's interesting because they really do a good job of showing that without taking away from the point he's trying to make. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he, you know, in the context of the way it was presented on stage, right, if he would be as boisterous and vocal, if he would be as energetic, if he hadn't gotten that nod from Hercules Mulligan. You know, I I think that that's a really great signifier that he's been fully inducted into the group. He finally has a group of friends. Would you say that he has been radicalized? By a group of domestic terrorists. (laughs) That's still my my favorite take of all time. I I, I actually have a take to add to that take later, too. Oh, yeah? I'm going to bring it up later. 
Uh, well, I, think- I look forward to hearing it. I just think it's, you know, it's just an interesting thing that they did in the musical because some of these guys he didn't even meet until he actually joined the army, you know, but the way yeah. it's the way it's oh, portrayed. It, IRL is- Lafayette comes in at like pretty much the very end. Yeah, right? like, but La- he doesn't know Lafayette until just before Yorktown in real life. Like, right, it's not but- it's not a real <laughs> friend group. The way it's presented is I just met you. We've had one beer. We are going to war. Yeah, it's very <laughs> funny. It's very funny. Um man, this is one of those songs cuz it's not a long song and the way it cuts directly to you'll be back. I think I've covered everything that I want to cover for this. Is there anything else that you're hoping to bring up for the farmer refuted? I mean, I could, I mean, we could talk about Seabree forever. I just, I, I will say, I do think this is a intelligent or a, the irony of not saying an intelligent there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not cutting it out. Yeah. No, keep, we're uh, keeping it. The, uh, I think it's, an intelligent thing the way they took this this trading of articles and letters back and forth between Seabury and Hamilton and that and reinterpreted it as a kind of rap sparring in public I think that it abbreviates it for the audience truncates things in a way that that it doesn't give this more stage time than is needed. I think it's obligatory that you have some stage time for the, for the loyalists, for the people that oppose the revolution. But I think that this short ish song going right into, you'll be back, I think is the ideal amount of time for it. Um, I think it's a, it's a good truncation of the, of the debate that was going on. Lin-Manuel um, does this a lot, right? We have, like, cabinet battles that are... Or cabinet meetings that are rap battles later. Mm-hmm. Like, taking something... Taking a broad thing that happened in, in real life and finding a fun, kind of shorter, easier way to adapt it so it's fun for the audience to, to get explained to them um, is something that he's going to do often, right? And that's just, this is just another example where, like, if you tried to tell this as it happened with articles, it'd be super lame, and it would take away from the the your obedient servant later that's like the big song where people are writing back and forth to each other Mm -hmm. and so taking this and instead of doing it that way here as well finding a more fun kind of public way is exciting because it it leaves the impact of your obedient servant for for later i think Mm. i couldn't agree more Perfect. Let's let's hard cut like they do in the musical to the <laughs> king because this is just the my impression of this and intended or not is every introduction to the king gives you the status of the war in, in my own kind of head canon for the choreography here because the first time we meet the king it's a hard cut like he's interrupting he is in charge he's in control at a whim it, there's a message from the king everyone has to stop what they're doing and he takes center stage later we're not getting the same kind of hard cut right it's slowly kind of later he's just like sitting in a chair bopping up and down like a weirdo like it it really goes (laughs) down it goes downhill from here for him and so Mm -hmm. this initial introduction you're like oh shit like this guy is in charge and uh, you know because you know that these guys are going to win because 
real life happened in between, right? So you know mm-hmm. that the king doesn't win. But if you did, like, if you didn't know that, when the king makes his presence here, I love the introduction because he's just the he's the king. He's interrupting whoever he wants, whenever he wants. He's in charge, and he's taking over this musical right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also is a shift, a a uh, a shift in slash a denial of the established order of the musical writ large. Because during this number, we have the rare single person solo on stage for an extended period of time. He is his own entity. And by and large, the other people in the song, the members of the ensemble, function more as props than they do performers. Yeah, it's a less intensive song for the ensemble, for sure. And they're not even in it, I don't think, really for the first bit. Right? It's, it's, they, they really try and make it about the, the king early on. that he's, It's just there. There's a little piano overlay, and he's just doing his thing. Well, do we do you want to get into this bit I have for this song or do you want to talk about the actual like content of it a little bit before we do that? Um, let's you go into the bit. I think the bit is is important to talk about, like the function of the song and then we'll talk about the content. We have to do both anyway. Yeah, well, it's I mean, it's uh, about what you just said about the ensemble. This everybody gets to take a break. It's fantastic. Uh and I think that it's it, it's uh intriguing to me. That even a show as, pardon the pun, revolutionary as Hamilton, <laughs> as as different as Hamilton, it still has to have one of these songs that we oftenly refer to as an N one, and that's because uh, if you if you're imagining the stage and you're looking at it from the top down, and at the at the downstage edge at the at the 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 area closest to the audience. You've got the apron, and this is the first wing. So that would be N1. So, and then going up from there, you'd have N2, N3, N4, depending on how large your stage was. And in a traditional musical, when you had a bunch of scenery to change, or you had a bunch of people that needed to change costumes, or both at the same time, you would drop the grand drape, or you would bring in an act curtain, and you would just do a two-person song in one. So this type of number has been uh, has been named after the place where it typically happens on the stage. And on the stage, yeah, right. it happens. The actual physical in one. location of the stage, right, is in one in the right, first gotcha. entrance, right? And I think that it is brilliant that the person that wants most to stay to the traditional ways is the one that has the traditional music theater mode of song. And also, his music sounds like something from 1960s pop. Like, he sounds like an English skiffle. He sounds like the Beatles or the Yardbirds, for goodness sakes. And I just, I, I adore the idea of giving the traditionalist character a traditionalist conventional tune with a traditionalist conventional arrangement. It is one of the most brilliant things that if you blink, you'll never notice it. I did not notice it till you wrote it in the notes. I so this is just I just I just watch Hamilton. I don't know anything about <laughs> the production of a musical, right? So like it, now that you say, of course there needs to be a number somewhere twenty five minutes in where people get to like sit down, relax, change their costumes, whatever it is they have to do 
to to get ready for the next big section of the play and they're doing this eight times a week right these breaks are important Mm -hmm. and so i i wouldn't have thought of this number that way because it serves such a good purpose to the story that you don't even need to know you don't you don't watch this and go oh this is just the one song so everyone can have a bit of a break that's not Mm -hmm. how you feel about it so i would have never noticed it but now that you now that you say it it makes perfect sense going into from here to the actual war when everyone's got to have their like in the next song everyone's got to have like blue coat outfits and has to be looking the part um for whichever side of the war they're on so it makes sense that this is the time while the king is up there for people to be able to go backstage and do that yeah and that's not to say that the song doesn't just purely serve good narrative function which it does don't get me wrong I think that this coming out of a farmer refuted makes perfect narrative sense. I'm just yeah. also saying if you can make perfect narrative sense and have a a reset song like this at this strategic point in the show, it's it's really good play building because 23 minutes on stage is not necessarily an eternity, but it could be kind of tiring if the 23 minutes of a show that you're are you're doing are from hamilton i mean this is not exactly a sleeper of a show no it's very active and it's very it's very like you have to be very focused there's so many people with such precise choreography that you're not spending 23 minutes kind of just standing there like it's 23 minutes of intense choreography that you have to nail or else you will kind of ruin the next person's choreography or throw something off. Like mm-hmm. Every member on the stage for that 23 minutes has to be perfect to, to make sure they're not, to make sure they're not taking away from the player messing something up. So it's like, it's not just 23 minutes of lounging around. It's 23 minutes of like intense physical activity on a precise, like, like just if you're, if you don't act and play, just try moving your body around in a precise way for 23 minutes. It's very hard. Like mm-hmm. pick up a stick pretend it's a sword and see if you can go 23 minutes without hitting yourself accidentally. It's very hard to do to be that precise and that active for that long. And I didn't think about it that way, but now that you've mentioned it, it, it it makes perfect functional sense and perfect narrative sense. And if you can hit those two birds, with the one stone that that's just the best possible scenario. Do you, do you wonder if that guy ever dropped the book can you imagine? Oh, I'd hate it if he did. <laughs> oh, man. You're talking about the... I, I'm sorry. I'm all about book guy today. I don't know why, but I just so agree with you. You were talking about precise movement for 25 Dude, book minutes. Book guy I is precise movement. Me, that he is took so, me back to book guy, man. <laughs> that's it. Pick up a book. Listening. Pause this podcast. Go pick up a book and just move it in between your legs in no particular order for 23 minutes without ever dropping the book or hitting yourself with it. Like you, you just can't, you can't do it. I can't do it. You probably can't do it. It's very hard. I can't. I'm terribly out of shape. I didn't mean, I didn't mean you. <laughs> like audience. <laughs> That's awkward. Yeah. I didn't mean you as a, I meant like just generally the audience listening to this. So instead of picking on me, you're going to pick on our two listeners. Yeah. I'm going to pick on all the, where did you get that number? <laughs> I, I just like, for some reason uh, that's the number today i don't we're know just gonna, we'll see we're just forever gonna have two listeners exactly that's funny <laughs> all right um now in terms of the content of the song what sticks out to you because to me this is the perfect kind of mix 
between portraying the king as a mad king, which is like historically kind of how he's portrayed and, mm-hmm. and probably how he was, and a mix of Lin Manuel said this song is meant to take the piss out of the king, and it certainly does. So you're meant to you're meant to laugh at this guy. He's meant to be intimidating, though, and I think it just serves all these purposes without taking away from any of the others. Um, what really sticks out to you with the with the content of the song? I would not have chosen to portray a king as a kind of gaslighting partner in the way that they do i think that that's an intriguing and unique decision that works for me and i think it works with the show i think that it gives you opportunities for more of these lyrical inversions that we've had elsewhere in the show like don't change the subject you're my favorite subject yeah i think is great i also i love in the recorded version that's the first time he pulls out his royal scepter, you know, to remind yes. you that he is he is your king regent and you are his subject. I think that the the balance here between no no honey, I promise you I love you and if you forget, I will abuse you to remind you that I love you. I think that it's unfortunately relevant and unfortunately effective. I I think that it really gets the message across as to how at at the at the whim of the English monarchy that the colonies were. Yeah, I th- I think that's true for all of Hamilton though. Like I think what makes what what initially put this in the cultural zeitgeist was that the immigration pieces of it were unfortunately relevant but unfortunately very effective. Mm-hmm. And so I think the the I think saying that makes a lot of sense because that a lot of this play at different points, depending on when or where you first encountered it will be unfortunately still relevant. And because of that, unfortunately still very effective. Yeah. I also do got to point out or admit that I'm a John Groff fanboy to my oh, core have been have you seen, for have years. You, sidebar. Have you seen Mindhunter? Uh, I haven't yet. Oh, I don't know where so to watch good. it, but I've heard it's very good. Yeah, it's on Netflix in Canada, and Jonathan Groff is in that, and he is like an FBI gotcha. agent. He he is an oh, acting nice. machine. He's not like it's not Glee. It's not Hamilton. He's not singing. It's like him as an actual like actor being an FBI agent. It's so good. Like it, not that this well, is actually acting. Sorry. Okay. That's not what you I meant. Beat That's me not to what it. I meant. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Sorry. But yeah, sorry, I know sorry. what you mean. That's not yeah, like, yeah, yeah. a television actor specifically where yeah. he's not in his typical setting like on glee or in hamilton where he's um singing like this is just him acting and it's very good yeah. not that not that this isn't actually acting i apologize yeah no i, I caught myself right away i was like oh that, no, was, that was very happens. bad that's not what i meant so uh uh a lot of people use the um uh, use the term straight to refer to a performance that is not a musical performance. If you want to, if you want to use that, you can. You've got musical sure, theater. I don't and straight know the theater. terms. I'm, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to, I'm trying to like keep myself out of holes, right? No, you're I have, fine. I have the shovel and I'm walking around with it, but the only thing I know how to do with it is dig, and that's not. I don't know how to. Well, you know, <laughs> when you find yourself in a hole. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So, so but no, I think he, he does non-musical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His straight performance in Mindhunter is very fucking good. Is that is that right? That's great. So so what you're saying is that he was actually acting instead of no. doing a musical? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, just don't even email me. 
you're listening to this, don't even email me. I already know, okay? I know. I know. I'm sorry. I don't need your email. So I will all right, let's let's take the heat off you for a second and I will <laughs> offer a a rare point of criticism about this musical. I love this point of criticism. I'm on board. He says, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. It should be flotilla. It would be so much better if it was flotilla. Would it though? Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna send a fully armed flotilla. That's not to remind you of my love. I th- I think I think the choice of the word battalion, while factually inaccurate, keeps the vibe of the song consistent. I disagree. Really? Full- I I will I will respectfully disagree on this one. I think flotilla just doesn't add the same level of oomph than battalion. No, you could even syncopate it more to make it more clipped and aggressive. I will send a fully armed flotilla to remind you of my love. And you've got all of those Fs flowing together that then inverts itself to get into the soft F of of to rhyme with love. So you have the inversion of the Fs there in the middle of the line. So much better if it was flotilla. I'm going to disagree on this one. I'm gonna disagree well, on this one, but we can open it up. Emails, tweets. Are you a, are you a flotilla person? Or are you a battalion person? You don't get to you don't get to listen to this podcast and not pick. You have to go on Twitter or email, and we need to know battalion or flotilla. Battalion is inaccurate, but I like it better. But Connor likes flotilla better. Gonna quit and the it's show. More ac- I swear. And it's more accurate. So he's already winning points here for the accuracy. So we just need your opinions because I would like to know where, where are all my battalion heads at? Now, in fairness, we've already discussed and both agree that the point of the show is not necessarily to be accurate. However, I will include that in the, the assets that my suggestion does have in its favor. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those like, I know it's not the point, but if it could be part of the point, I'll take it because it is correct. Exactly. Right. So exactly. I'll, what I really love about okay, I'm gonna say that a lot for this whole play, but what I really love about this song is the way it kind of takes you in and out of the different ways they're trying to portray the king. Mm, to mm-hmm. me, the the da 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 parts. I'm not even gonna try and sing it, but those parts of the song. I don't know what they're intended to do, but I love them. I don't know if they're the parts that are meant to portray him as crazy. I think that's probably it. I don't know. Because it's the only time in this whole musical that someone just goes and actually, like, sings the tune of their song. For mm-hmm. extended... Like, it's it's extend, it's a long time. I don't... It, it was really jarring the first time I watched it in the best way possible. But I just... It's a weird kind of... You don't expect it right away. And then you're like, who is this? Like, is this guy the king? Like, he's just, you know, it's almost like rambling. Like, he's just off rambling for extended portions of this song before remembering, like, oh, yeah, I got to send those fully armed battalions and kill their friends and family. Mm-hmm. I think that that's definitely a, at play here. I think that, that the mania is intentional. And I also think that it's a in line with that mania, right? It's a kind of crazed perversion of hey jude in in my opinion it does have a very uh up-tempo aggressive 60s but going back to my i think that this is supposed to be a beatles tune you know it's supposed it does to be have very that vibe. Vi- absolutely it has that it's vibe. supposed like, to be to very tea, very that's exactly, english that's exactly you know? what it reminds me of 
Now that now that you say it, it's exactly right. Well, I guess Flotilla might be right too. Then hmm. I no, that's that's <laughs> not correct. I'm 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 holding firm. We could do this for twelve hours. No one, there's zero people online that are going to convince me that I'm going to like the the line Flotilla there better than Battalion. I'm positive. I'm, not, I'm you know positive. Uh, we don't have to agree on everything, and I think it's going to be more interesting if we don't. <laughs> I just I just want to know what other people think at this point. I do too. I'm I very know where curious. I stand. I know where you stand. We are dug in our trenches. We're not moving. But where does everyone else stand? I am curious to hear. I I really, really am. I didn't know we were gonna open it up and now that I'm I'm thrilled that we have. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm sure we'll come back to it lots. I really like the way each kind of verse in this song is introduced. The king is giving us the exposition of the complaints of the people. Right? Like, you say the price of my love's not a price that you're willing to pay. That wasn't Hamilton Mm -hmm. coming out in his song and saying, like, the price of his love is not a price that we're willing to pay. Right? I think it's an interesting choice to give us the the very broad complaints um, Mm -hmm. of the people from the king's mouth. And then he'll then he adds like something funny to it, like you cry in your tea, which you hurl in the sea when you see me go by. I just love those lines because they add to just how funny this song is. But I do find it an interesting narrative choice to give the complaints of the people to the person they're complaining about and not from the the people. I think that that informs our view of him. I think that his delivery of these lines suggests that he doesn't truly care that he considers the American complaints illegitimate. I think that hearing the American complaints in his mouth informs us of his opinion of said complaints. And I think that the disdain that he has for them, the dismissal he has for them is very, very easy to understand. And I think that, it is a I, I don't know I don't know if I had thought before until you mentioned it. I don't know if I had thought before how novel an idea it is to put these complaints in his mouth rather than somebody else's. Well he's but also think- translating them. Like he's not taking the straight like if if the complaint mm, is mm-hmm. like you're taxing tea too much, what he says is um, you say the price, or you say our love is draining, and you can't go on. That's not the complaint. No one's, no one's over in New York being like, "Oh, our love is so draining, we can't possibly go on." That's not the like. He's translating the the complaint into something that's easier to dismiss and easier to just like laugh off. Well, but I also think that that's part of that's just a framing convention of how they've they've chosen to characterize him as a jilted lover right that just yeah. fits well within the oeuvre of pop yeah, music that's, that's true right it's also like yeah no one's on the other side describing this as love right yeah. it's only the king who's describing this as love that's a good point you know and that's just how he perceives it because he needs to be loved it's a you know he's um the king in hamilton is the is the purple man from jessica jones you know, he's not he's not meant to be trustworthy. He's not seeing things accurately. He's got his own psychoses at work and they're preying on him and America is suffering because of it. Yeah, and he threatens, like, I will kill your friends and family. Like he threatens that. So we we get the impression that this guy is dead serious, and we're gonna see that 
as we transition into the next song, what I, I really love just the cheeky little like when you're gone, I'll go mad line because that's only there as like a, a throwaway line to be like, hey, this is our reference to him normally being referred to as like a mad king because it's just mm-hmm. hilarious to sneak that in there. Expertly done. Expertly it, it, done. It fits with the theme of the song, but it's also like that's part of the that's when the play is kind of we talked about it last episode that this is when Hamilton knows its audience and knows it's a play being performed in 2020 or 2015 or 2016 or whenever you watch this. Right. Mm-hmm. It knows that it's being performed in the future. So it sneaks a line like that and is like a nod like, hey, we get you. We know. We know yeah. when we know how you're watching this. We get it. Yep. You know what else I think was expertly done? what all of it how you (laughs) just mentioned transitioning into right hand man because it's a it's a heavy transition and the scepter coming down and then the fucking murder and the drummer guy who's playing his invisible drums who in the disney plus cut it's not clear if he's also the murderer all of it's amazing and, and a little confusing it's a little confusing i think that that might be a an attempt to reference how confusing suddenly finding yourself in a war might be i'm not sure it may it may just be a failing of how they staged it but i do the transition coming out of this is my takeaway is that i should be threatened by the king and i will admit i i think that groff does an adequate job here i think that he really does communicate to us that he does mean to be a threat and that he is a danger and we should be worried yeah i think so i think i think i leave this song no and the it's a hard it's a hard thing to navigate because we as an audience know that he loses so if you come off too strong it almost like it's almost like egg on his face because mm-hmm. we know that he's going to lose. So you have to find the line of where he's sufficiently aggressive so we understand that like the Americans didn't just win this like all willy-nilly easily. And by the end, like the battle at Yorktown is a huge success, right? It's not like they had beat all of Britain back, right? Like after that the British surrendered but still had a pretty big presence in the colonies. But they kind of up and left like Yorktown, which is the big kind of final land battle, isn't like a big defeat of the whole British army. Right. Mm. And so we have to portray the king as someone who kind of hustle hits and never quits. Also, while knowing the audience already knows he loses. So you can't I don't I don't know, but it's, it's a hard thing to navigate. And I think it's done sufficiently well. I agree, but also I would circle back to something that we discussed last week where we may know how it all ends, but we don't know the middle bit yet. So we have to have him be threatening a little bit. So that's that we what understand I mean. He has to they, be threatening. Yeah, but to he some can't degree. be too threatening because then it just kind of seems dumb because he maybe that's the point, though. I don't know. I, I think it's done well. I just think it's a very. This particular point of how to portray the king properly is very difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I could have done a better job. <laughs> but I'm, <the> way... <laughs> I'm positive I could not have done a better job. I'm fully aware that there's a 0% chance. I don't think, I, I'm pretty positive I couldn't have even done an adequate job. Regardless of this play, I'm pretty sure... If you just told me, like, here's the story of Hamilton, write it, I don't think 
I would have done an adequate job, let alone better than Lin Manuel. If you gave me the story of Hamilton and told me to write it, I would look at you and say, "Why? You just gave me the story. You write it." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get out of here. I don't want to do this. Um, so, Right Hand Man. While we're getting into it, it's a doozy of a song. There is a mm-hmm. lot. This this is a heavy song, and there's a lot. Not heavy in terms of like heavy. I don't know. Heavy is not the right word. There's just a lot in here. There's a lot of character work and, and plot and a lot of it that we have to kind of move through. I just have yeah. a propping question, a question about props. And I don't know if you're going to know mm-hmm. the answer. Why? Not that I think it's a bad choice. And I think the Disney Plus, the way the camera cuts makes it unclear. But I think if you just watched it from your single point of view in the seat, it would probably make a lot of sense. I can't remember. I only watched it the one time live. But why not give this guy a prop drum? When someone is, right, you have prop drums, they exist. Why not give this guy a prop? What is the function of having somebody pretend to use a prop instead of just giving him the prop that you surely have? Well, sometimes it's just time. Sometimes you may not just have time to get something in somebody's hands. Maybe maybe in a off-Broadway or pre-off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway workshop they had a drum and then found out that they did not have time to actually have a drum there other times you know so so that's possible other times you you just don't need every prop and this show is already pretty lean on stage properties it it really is i mean when when someone has a sword or someone has a scepter or like we discussed earlier when someone has a book you notice it because a lot of times in this play, people don't have actual properties. You know what? Now that you're saying it, I've never once questioned why none of the characters have guns and they're using their hands. That's always sat perfectly with me. I've only ever questioned it with the drum. So maybe I'm just overanalyzing this bit because now that I'm thinking about it more, it really fits with how the rest of the musical's done prop wise. It's kind of lean, right? You know, as as far as props go, it's pretty lean. Now, there is also, it's funny, we were talking about uh, the ring cycle earlier. I'm going to talk about Wagner again. <laughs> there, is this, I, there is this idea of, um, I forget the actual translation, but uh, Der Kunstmasterswerk. Which is oh like the, yeah, okay. the the ultimate the ultimate work of art, right? And the theory and the the way I remember it is that Wagner put this forward. He was one of the the earliest proponents of it. That which does not add to a production detracts from it. Okay. Right. Okay. Gotcha. So the fact that he didn't have a drum in his hands. The fact that they're inconsistent about when they use props and when they don't, that detracted from your enjoying the show. So you can say that maybe that didn't add to it, right? Maybe that's a flaw. But for me, I think that they're they're selective to the point of they only put a prop in someone's hand when it's absolutely crucial. And and for me, like the you know, it's a bit like jazz, man. Some of the most important notes are the ones you don't play. And the the drum not being there 
makes it important that Hamilton actually does take a literal, actual, tangible quill from Washington. Right. Right. And I think yeah, that I that's, that's something that you, you articulate brilliantly in your notes for this episode, but didn't relate it to the lack of the drum. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I didn't relate it to the lack of the drum. I think the quill is a huge moment. Like taking that mm-hmm. quill is a huge moment in the show. I don't think it detract. It's just something I noticed. I it, it was mm-hmm. just more from what I didn't. I don't. I don't look at the lack of a drum and go, "Oh, I don't. I don't understand it." I was mm-hmm. just wondering, like, like the time aspect. As someone who doesn't know how musicals are prepared and created, how like what is the behind the scenes process of choosing who has props, who doesn't? Because there's also surely an element of it of the more props you introduce, the more things there are to mess up. Every time there someone's are. going backstage to get a prop, every time someone's using a prop, that's another thing they have to remember. That's another bit of the choreography. That's another thing that can break. That's another thing that can be done in the wrong time. It just adds more things for this already complicated uh, performance. It just adds another thing for that actor to, to, to not get right in his performance. Yeah, you know, and that's, you know, are we, are we going to build it? Are we going to rent it? Are we going to purchase it? right? How long are we going to rent it for? You know, where does it come from? If we're going to build it, how do we make it be period accurate? You know, and then once it's in the room, how does it get on stage? How does it get onto the actor? How does it get off stage? How do we not fucking break it? Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) But yeah, so I just, I think that the, I think that the choreographed dancing, it works for me. Because most of this show, for me, exists in a liminal existential space of implication. Most of the show exists in a place that I don't need to be literal. Because that's the show that's presenting itself to me, right? But I think that it is, it's worth noting that it took you out. I mean, because it's also... It's in, it's in the middle of the king having an actual prop and then you have the drummer that doesn't and then you have washington who does have an actual prop so you're let me put it to you this way when you mix your media you mix your message and i think that Maybe your that's thoughts what I'm here picking up on. Yeah. are a are a really good argument for the case that maybe Hamilton was a little loosey-goosey with how it dealt with its props because maybe there are inconsistencies that detract some viewers. Hashtag give this man a drum. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Right? That's like, too, I've seen is it too late to change the Twitter handle? Yeah. Hashtag at, you can find our Twitter account at give this man a drum. Um, yeah, I don't know. I maybe I'm also colored by the fact that I've watched like a behind the scenes prop video on Hamilton and I know that the table they use for the room where it happened gets like very laboriously rigged up to the ceiling every evening. So maybe mm-hmm. like knowing how much work they put into that one prop, I'm like they can't get a drum. Like maybe maybe that's just why I bring it up. Maybe cuz I don't remember at what point I noticed it, but I think I think maybe just after watching the behind the scenes and knowing just how much how much effort they put into some props right that this is a fairly easy one to to do but i i don't think it takes away i just think it's noticeable it's a, it's a yeah. little weird to have this guy walking around the 
the stage without the drum. And if you don't find a meaning in that, it just kind of looks odd. I agree. And I, I, you know, like I said, I, I think it's a feature, not a bug. I think that the time and energy they put into this show means that if the, if there's not a drum on stage, they chose not to have a drum on stage. hundred percent. Yeah. I don't think that it's is a... Sorry. like New York, New York city did not run out of drums. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so like, I, I don't think that, yeah, I think it's intentional, but at the same time, if it's distracting, it's distracting. Now, wouldn't it be funny? Wouldn't it be hilarious? Because it happens. Wouldn't it be funny? And I don't think this is true. I'm not disparaging anyone, but we've spent, I don't know how long talking about this. Wouldn't it be interesting if Steven just left his drum backstage that night? <laughs> He's going and for the recording. There was suppo- and <laughs> there was supposed to be a drum on stage. I don't remember, yeah. you know? Let's dive deep Hamilton, where we're going to talk, we're, we're specifically Bradley's going to talk for half an hour about a drum that may or may not be intentionally <laughs> missing. Yeah, so this guy's all, this is the headcanon. This guy's all hyped up. He does this eight times a week. He's a professional, right? But the big cameras are in. There's no audience, right? We're recording two sets, um, or we're recording the musical twice for Disney Plus Baby. I'm going to be all famous and it's my shining moment. It's the only time. Oh, fuck, where's my drum? Oh, shit. No, 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 no. I'm out here where I didn't go get it. Oh, God, where's my drum? And so he just he just imp- in, improvises and just starts playing mm-hmm. the air. Because what else is he going to do? What, what else, else are you going to do? do, do that? You don't have your drum, but you, you still got the choreography. Exactly. And I'm not saying I think it happened. It's just, wouldn't it be funny if we were spinning our wheels on this for no reason? (laughs) Did the prop master and Lin-Manuel get together and decide, it's like, no, this guy just forgot his drum. Okay, enough about the drum. Hashtag give this man a drum. (laughs) We are are moving on. There's there's still so much to talk about in this song. All right, a few things early on. A few things early on that really stick out to me without doing too big of a deep dive yet is Hamilton's kind of retrospective view on his childhood. This is the second time that we are learning that he, I think maybe the first time, no, it's the second time he wishes for a war explicitly, not really as a war, but more as a way for him to rise up through the ranks. He wants to increase his station in life and how he thinks he can do that is through taking a hard line in a war, picking a side, going aggressively for that side. And then when we, when they win, he'll be honored and moved up in his station because he fought so aggressively and boldly and bravely. And he's willing to die. He's willing to be a martyr for this. Like he either dies or he gets what he wants, but he's, he's going to participate regardless. And then also this sticks out to me at the beginning. What the fuck is Burr doing here? At what point did Burr who just like two songs ago, the only thing that happened in between is the King talked. Right, but at the very end of Farmer Refuted, this guy's like, "Yo, leave this dude alone!" And now Burr is with the gang of friends. He's got his coat. He's with the gang of friends. He's rising up. It's just, it. It's just such an odd take for Burr to really be part. Like we spent so much time so far talking about how he's not part of the group of friends. But the fact that the, the, the fact that Burr managed to get his way back into the friendship group here, he's got his friendship bracelet now. And he's got his coat and he's rising up with the rest of them. We need that exposition for Burr because <laughs> he's got his friendship bracelet. He's in. He's in. He didn't get the beer earlier, but now he's got his bracelet. He's in the crew. We need to mm-hmm. know that he is picking a side now. But it's just it's just odd to see him with the lads kind of just being a hype 
a part of the hype crew for Hamilton here. Well, the tide so has turned. Lot. That was just a lot. I just just dumped on you. I apologize. I liked it. The I mean, the tide has turned. War has actually happened. Maybe he was trying to be standoffish and play both sides so as to try to not let the revolution actually break out. I don't know. I don't think that that's true. I think that he was mostly just trying to do whatever and and see how it worked out on the other side. But I I think that the way they framed Aaron Burr in the show, they're they're up as this like wishy-washy play both sides duplicitous character. The way they framed him, they've run into an unfortunate fact that he just was in the army. You right. know, he's not so he, yeah he's not part of the british thing at all he is part of the rebellion just yeah, a less so, vocal part of it so i think that's why there is no expositional clarification as to how he ended up actually joining the army we don't we don't hear his explanation as to why he finally picks a side i think we can assume that he's upwardly mobile just like hamilton i think that's fair right but i think that it's curious lacking that exposition but yeah, it just, lacking it, it kind of sticks out to me that burr's just there after after yeah. th- the last time we saw burr was one song ago when he was cautioning hamilton to to not inflame this thing and now he's like part of the hype crew it's a very interesting contrast it is yeah i i think that it's it it's noteworthy uh i think that there's there's more going on in this song to where i don't i'm not taken out of it wondering like oh why is where there oh i think it's brilliantly done i'm just pointing it out just as the contrast that it is not that i have a, a negative opinion of it oh for sure i love these coats that let you know that everybody is on the same side now i love these coats you know, it's helpful, we, we, and everyone's got their color. Like color at the beginning symbolized whether you were an important character or not. Everyone mm-hmm. started in white, except for Burr and then Hamilton, and now all these people, even the ensemble, has color in their in their costume. So it's just adding like these people are all important now. Yeah, and they're they're particularly nice coats too. I I really like them, but yeah, it is it you know it, Hamilton is not only like included in the group fully now but so is burr and now like we have in the costuming we have the visual storytelling of the continental army has actually formed you know we skip a lot of time we skip a lot of exposition and we're able to do that just because everybody's wearing the same damn jacket (laughs) and a lot of people like we said last time there's more than these five people yeah. in this in this rebellion yeah. right so we skipped a lot of time and a lot of other important people along the way but yeah ex- exactly the coats do a lot to to kind of help kind of visually represent what's going on now because we didn't get that that exposition of what happened in between mm-hmm. uh looking at the notes that we've prepared here i agree with you that hamilton and mulligan are an interesting pairing I also find them to be a really good time together. I yeah, adore so, them. so Mulligan's main accomplishment, IRL, is is the spying bit at his tailor, which we'll learn more about later. But that's where mm-hmm. he's known from. So I actually I actually thought it was nice that whether it's just a musical thing or not, that he's actually out kind of fighting with Hamilton at the beginning. 
right? To me, to me, it, it's a little bit unbelievable that someone could so obviously be wearing like this guy. Like the the spies are not the ones out there in the blue coats, you know. Like it's a little bit of a weird thing for me to go from Mulligan being so out there with Hamilton stealing cannons in his blue coat, and then like the going back to be a spy. Right, but I loved it in this in this play because it adds a lot of context to his character. He doesn't get a lot of lines. He's gonna have his one big moment later, so it just helps us learn a little bit more about him. And you know, it's Hamilton's friend. It's it's a great pairing. I, I love that bit of the song where they're they're stealing the cannons, and Hamilton kind Hamilton's kind of laying down like, "Hey, Hamilton's not abandoning ship. Like I'm here, and he's just the bra guy. Like <laughs> he's, mm-hmm. he's again, he's the hype man. It's an interesting yeah. pairing, but he is the most." Right, if we're taking reality aside for a second, he's the most kind of boisterous hype man out of the group, so he's the best person in that moment to hype Hamilton up. Oh, I agree. What's funny though is that Mulligan was on the front lines with Hamilton, though. Oh, IRL, like, he. I have no idea. And I, I think that's why they are paired up in this song and in A Farmer Refuted, because the like the the whole canon heist. In my opinion, that's not even the most interesting part of that story. Part of it comes from Hercules Mulligan. Well, lay it on so, us. What is it? So they um, they find out that there's a bunch of cannon being stored at the battery, and they decide to do an Ocean's Eleven type sneaky in, sneaky out. And the plan is as simple as this, dude. All they're going to do is drag the cannons out. Like, because all the cannon are on <laughs> wheels, okay? Right. They're, they're heavy. They're, they need to be mobile. Yeah, so they're, so they're on wheels. They're going to sneak into the battery. And unfortunately, the English, because the, the Continental Army was not the only one with spies, right? Like, Her- Hercules Mulligan did not invent espionage. I have so, a note on that later. I don't know if you saw my notes on Hamilton's plan later. But I have some things to talk about about Hamilton's plan. We need some spies on the inside. It's like, thanks, oh, yeah. thanks yeah. dude. Like, what a genius concept you've created, spying. Who would have thunk? So I have some thoughts yeah. later. It's like, oh, so let me get this straight. We need stuff and information? Oh, you just invented <laughs> warfare. Um, right, like, yeah. Oh, I'm going to write the Congress for stuff, <laughs> and we need, we need someone who's going to give us the intelligence. <laughs> Shut up, Hamilton. I'm going to talk about it later, but yeah. So there's, there's this battleship. The HMS Asia or Asia, I think it's just HMS Asia. So there's this battleship, 64-gun warship, the Asia, that is uh, docked near the battery. The English find out that this, this cannon heist is going on, and they launch a counterattack. So there's a couple dozen cannon that are being stored by the British at the battery. They make out with 21 of the cannon. So they only left three behind. And they do this by just pulling them out of the artillery emplacement. And Hamilton, because like he gets all of this cannon, he later goes on to lead an artillery regiment. And that was his job. And it was easy for him to learn how to work the cannon because he was just such a super smart guy, right? But during... Stealing the cannon, the Asia, which again, 64-gun warship, starts launching broadsides on the emplacement where they're stealing the cannon from. So that's 32 shots at a time. On their own target. 
like on their, their own, own target. Their own target, but, yeah. Right, but they knew that there were patriots, there were American patriots trying to steal their cannons, and they didn't want that to happen, okay? Of course, yeah, that's so important. So Mulligan, Hamilton, and their militia are getting shelled by the English. Hamilton gives Mulligan his rifle so that he can pull another cannon out of the battery. Eventually, the shelling gets so intense, Mulligan and everybody else have to retreat. He drops Hamilton's rifle and goes to regroup outside of the battery. Hamilton gets... uh, sees mulligan because everybody else is retreating and they're leaving and asks him where his gun is and mulligan told him that he left it inside and it's time to go so they all wait for hamilton he he starts taking off on his own alexander hamilton walks back into the battery under english bombardment to get his rifle back and then just like comes back out with his gun and then they leave that to me is the coolest part of the story. Yeah, that's like that's the heist part of it, right? Like, like the play just leaves it up, like oh, we stole their cannons, but you don't know how yeah. they did it. Yeah, but that's, but that's, also uh, the, the heist. This guy is like, you left my rifle inside. I'll be right back. I like, get the, the full co- impression that the cojones. I I get the full impression that Hamilton is completely sincere when he says he'll be a martyr for this. Like he is ready to die. Mm-hmm. He's either, like, I really, like, at the beginning, he's like, I'm either going to die on a battlefield in glory or rise up. I firmly believe that he believes that, right? He's going to do his best to be as noticeable as possible and do as much as possible so that when the war ends, he gets rewarded as much as possible or he's going to die. And he's happy with either. I believe that he believes it, but I don't understand it. The idea that it's the only way for him to rise up. I, I think it's necessary for the narrative, but I don't understand it. Because early on in life, they make, they make a point of saying how successful he was as a child. They put him in charge of a trading charter. Like, he was clearly a, a child savant. He was brilliant. He was doing great. Like, maybe, maybe I don't it's just understand. something Hamilton says to convince himself. Everyone needs a, a reason, right? You don't go to war without a oh, reason. Oh, yeah. So, like, maybe. some people's, like, a lot of people who, who are on the British side, surely not every single one of them believes that God ordained this king as the rightful ruler of these colonies. Like some people just want to fight people and kill people. Like some people are just in it for the battle and they just like tell themselves that the king is like, that's just their reason. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are loads of people on both sides that truly believe like either the king is the king and is like ordained by God to, to rule over this area. And so a lot of people on the rebellion side don't believe that at all, but there's a lot of people in the gray in between that they're just on whichever side they're on. Cause they want, they want to fight. I think that's Hamilton a little bit. He's a little scrappy. He's young, scrappy, and hungry. I think part of yeah. it is, is that he wants he wants to rise up, but he also wants a fight. And the fact that the, the the fighting part can be something that he wants and he gets to rise up can be can be helpful as well. Well, and he was radicalized by domestic terrorists. And he was radicalized by domestic terrorists. That's the official let's dive deep take. He was the he hottest was ra- of takes. The hottest of takes and yeah once once you're in you're in he's going for it um i really enjoyed how this song opens with the Mm. the Mm. ensemble just the foreboding right we have all of our characters and we have the ones that aren't the the main characters at least in the disney plus cut where the camera is showing you 
the characters that we see kind of warning us about how seriously the British are taking this and how hard it's going to be to win are the female characters. The girls team is back and it's Angelica, Eliza and Peggy are kind of center stage in the Disney plus cut. When you watch it live, you ha- you can see the whole stage from where you're sitting. There's a lot more. Most of our cast is on the stage, but from what we can see on Disney plus, which is where most people watch this, our girls team is the one there and there's close ups to Angelica's face where they're just talking about there's 32,000 troops in New York Harbor, right? They just let that sit, right? That's a lot of people that are there. And we learned later with Washington that that's more people than the, the rebellion has. And so the sense of foreboding is really effective in really laying the ground. Like this is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. People are going to die. This is not going to be a cakewalk. I'm really glad that you mentioned the girls being in the forefront there because I think it's one thing that supports these four songs as a unit because we begin with the sisters discussing revolution and we begin the ending of this section with them facing the reality of it coming to pass. Yeah, and what I like about it is it's the ones that are not fighting that are the best position to realize the ones that are fighting, they don't care. Like Washington, like some of the generals and stuff really care. I don't think Hamilton gives a shit about the numbers. Hamilton's not out here worrying about the exact numbered troops everywhere, right? He's there to, he's fighting anyway. That could be 82,000 troops and Hamilton's still fighting. Right. But what I like is it's the people who are not fighting, who aren't as emotionally invested in the day to day actual, like, Angelica's not getting shot on the field in battle. So I like that it's the characters that their actual role in this war is, I don't know what the right word is. Their role um, is to be, what's the word I'm looking for? They play in the, if this is baseball, because I love baseball so much, they're in the (laughs) outfield. They're in the outfield. They're kind of watching things from a distance. They're not the ones in danger day in and day out. And so Mm -hmm. it's effective that even they, even they can look at 32,000 troops in New York Harbor and be fucking terrified. Right. I think it's, uh, sorry. I just, I don't know how to make that distinction and I don't know how to accurately portray their role in the war correctly. Cause I didn't just do that, but it, well, no, I, I think I'm it's intriguing is that they, they have a, they have the best ability to look at things from a kind of wider point of view. And so I like that they're the one giving us the wide point of view on what the British are bringing to bear here. Yeah, I agree. They're the spectators. And I mean, and we're talking about a period of time where people would picnic and watch battles. So it's it's <laughs> not <laughs> wanna, inaccurate. Want to the, wanna go to the park? Sure. Already they ready, would. We're going to have a sandwich or we're going to watch 100 people murder each other. Sounds lovely, darling. It happened during the American Civil War as well, man. That's such an odd like date night. Yeah, but, isn't hey, it wild? Honey, we're we're going to the <laughs> we're going to the field. We're going to the moor. Yeah, like, it's oh, like going God. to a drive-in shooting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's the entertainment. It's the entertainment. Yeah, it's, it's like also hey, a good uh, way to be neutral. Like you're just sitting in the middle watching and really, oh la di da. Yeah, this is fun. Whatever happens, happens. I like I like that idea. Yeah, it's just it's such a funny form of entertainment. You know, just. Oh yeah, it's it's wild, but yeah, it, it actually happened. Pe- people sitting up on a blanket on a hill, going, "Oh no, I do believe that Jedediah has fallen in battle." It really happened. 
anyway, I'm getting oh, off. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like the ensemble. There's so much here. I, I think the ensemble really stands up for me in this song, too. I think they stand out earlier um, and, and in a lot of songs with their choreography. But this is the song in particular where I first really love their kind of repetitive whispers. The ensemble is kind of being the internal consciousness of some of our characters. And so mm. later we have, when, when Hamilton's about to take the quill, we have the ensemble like whispering, like, I'm not throwing away my shot, like really reminding Hamilton of that. Um, same early on with the ensemble, they're helping kind of portray the 32,000 ships in New York Harbor. I think this song is really effective in how they use the the, the whispering kind of consciousness to, to add dramatic effect and and to remind us why these characters are doing what they're doing Mm -hmm. you also get the sense that they're expressing the dread that the american populace might feel whether they were whether they were really wanting to revolt or not you're you're waking up in new york city and whether you wanted a revolution or not you've got one and so now you're you're having to deal with being in occupied territory and that that sense of dread takes, you know, while the focus are is on the Skylers, you get this unison of discomfort that the ensemble expresses in a way that we couldn't if it was just focused on the principles. Right. That's a good point, too. Yeah, I, I just find the ensemble to be very, very effective. All right. So the whole point of this song is right hand man. That's what it's called. Washington is here. He's in our lives. For the first time, it's the moment we've been waiting for. Washington is here, and things are going particularly terrible. He's outgunned, mm-hmm. he's outmanned, he's outnumbered and outplanned. This doesn't sound great. And so he's kind of letting us know what he needs is a is a right-hand man. I I love this from Washington because we know he wins. It's the exact same problem you have with the king, but reverse. You can't portray him as too cocky or too confident. Right, but you have to portray him as bold enough and visionary enough to to win because he's saying all these problems, but you know he overcomes them. So how does he do that? And I really like the way he he starts out big. He's yelling. Uh, Burr's introduction is really hype, and then he immediately pauses and goes like, "Can I be real a second? Because we mm-hmm. don't know. Like the real Washington is a revered figure. He is his his person is bigger than himself." And so he kind of gets the moment he pauses and he's like, look, I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude who's in charge of this army. And here are the problems I'm dealing with. I really loved how unlike the king, they sink into Washington just as a person instead Mm -hmm. of as a general Mm -hmm. to kind of sit with how he personally feels because he never gets the chance to just be a, a dude in a war. I love everything that you've expressed about the character Washington. I also, I'd be remiss if I don't mention this brilliant Penzance reference. Now I'm the model <laughs> of a modern major general. Yeah. And that, like, it's it's funny, but it also speaks to what you're saying. I, I can't help but acknowledge people are putting me up on a pedestal. I get it. I appreciate the affection that you give me. I appreciate the respect you give me, but let's like we're gonna break it down i'm gonna and they literally break it down in the music um and we're like let me level with you and we're gonna explain to you how we solve these problems and i think that you're so shrewd in your analysis here because washington outlines 
It's not that I don't understand how to start solving these problems. I get it. I'm not dumb. It's it's just I can't be everywhere at once, people. But he also and, like, can't he can't invent more weapons. Right? Yeah. He's outnumbered and outmanned. He can't invent people or weapons. Like he no matter how good you are as a general, he is a man, not a magician. He can't just snap his fingers and have another battalion or flotilla or whatever hashtag <laughs> where are you at he can't snap his fingers and ha- have that appear he can't make more weapons so even he he has real world restrictions on what he's working with aside from him like so you can put him on a pedestal but no one on a pedestal can make weapons appear out of nowhere mm-hmm. so someone steps up to uh, offer washington their assistance and washington is not necessarily interested <laughs> it's our best friend it's the new he's got his friendship bracelet he shot his shot this is burr's day so far this is burr's day he gets up in the morning he shoots his, he shoots his shot with angelica that's fucking terrible that's not good but he's still vibing he's still doing okay and then he's walking that after that heartbreak he walks into the square and there's hamilton just accosting a dude with a scroll like how rude is this guy so then he's got to step in and stop he's the he's got to step in and stop hamilton from being a jerk so that now it's in the afternoon and then this war breaks out in new york he's like fuck i'm in new york i guess i gotta pick a side so he goes to the lads and he gets his bracelet and his coat he apologizes like yeah i'm here now and he's like you know what i'm gonna be i'm gonna do this i'm gonna be in it i'm gonna go talk to washington now it's the evening time right and after dinner things are fine he's gonna i'm gonna go talk i soften washington up a little bit i'm a smart guy i fought for this dude who got shot in canada one time that's cool and Washington's like, yeah, fuck off, mate. Like, get out of here. He's like, he's just like Angelica. Like, no, you gotta be gone, sir. I'd like Sorry. you to write a children's book entitled Burr's Very Bad Day. Burr's Very, it's a, yeah, it's, these four songs are Burr's Very No Good, or No Good, Very Bad Day. Bad Day. And once again, <laughs> Burr's moment with Washington is interrupted and hijacked by someone else. So, like so his this moments- is where we get into my headcanon. I have a problem with how this is narrated. In the best way, like, as in, like, I really love how it's done. Fucking go off, man. This is what... Okay, we're going to do a what happened and versus what was portrayed. Here's what happened. What happened is (laughs) Burr went up to Washington. This is just my headcanon because I'm positive this meeting did not really happen between these three people. Right? Burr goes up to Washington and he says, Hey, I'm an experienced guy. I'm here. What can I do? Washington probably says something like uh i appreciate your help kind of here's where i'm at with my strategy i'm not sure um i'm not sure you're the best person to help me right now but thank you for your service like probably like right like burr's a soldier he's in the army he's got his coat and his friendship bracelet he's in he's in the he's in the hype crew so washington was probably something like hey you're not really the right guy for me right now but there's a whole bunch of places we can use you we know he gives him a command later so he trusts burr by hey here's your command go do your thing and then hamilton walks in and hamilton's like hey you summoned me here what's going on and that's how that happened it was more of like how burr remembers it is like and then i was there and i'm at the end of my no good very bad day and i go and i talk to washington and i'm telling him about how amazing i am and how helpful i can be and this guy doesn't fucking listen to anybody or anything this guy's a complete wreck he doesn't see the potential in me and then who's got to come and ruin my day hamilton again like he's remembering it and portraying it in a way that i don't think it happened there's no way this meeting went exactly how i don't know this is burr's narration for sure 100 yeah. and this this goes back to unreliable narrator 
Yeah, he this this is where the first time I'm like, oh, this is the most unreliable narration ever. There's no way this meeting went down like this. It it can't be. It it cannot be. Now that it being said, be. there's no way. Real or not, it gives us, in my opinion, one of a, a great musical moment in the show. You know, going back to that idea of leitmotif, going back to that idea of hip-hop as the music of revolution. When Burr meets with Washington, everything is very string-based. Things come down, right? This is, uh, uh, you know, there's, uh, as you mentioned, there's some tempo modulation in this song that's dynamically and well done. Here we have a change in dynamics everything comes down right and it's string based and then when hamilton walks in what happens the beat comes back well you get the, like now, do 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 have i done something wrong sir on the contrary yeah. like they, they give you a little jingle to to even like make sure you know that the music's changing mm-hmm. yeah it's it's so brilliant it's it's just it's really like once hamilton and washington are together and burr is gone we we get that pickup boom back into the downbeat to let us know that the, the strings are not important anymore. And now the, the cross stick on the snare is uh, the way I hear it. It becomes a little more aggressive. It's a little louder at that point, you know, getting further away from the conventionalism of Burr away from the timidity of Burr with the strings. I think it's subtle, but very well done. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly well done. This whole meeting is, is incredible. I think the, the unreliable narrator Burr is kind of most of the Burr section when we actually get to this meeting with Hamilton and Washington, though, and they're chatting, Washington is like a frustrated mess. He's punching his desk. He's saying all... I don't have the lyrics pulled up in front of me. I don't know how I accidentally exited them. But he's just going over all the, the, the problems here. And he needs Hamilton's help. And then he kind of relates to Hamilton. He's like, oh, I was just like you when I was younger, head full of fantasies of dying like a martyr. And then Hamilton's like, yes, that's me. Yes, mm -hmm. sir dying like a martyr and then one of my favorite lines of ha probably if i had to do a line ranking right if i had to do a ranking of like lines or phrases in hamilton this is definitely in my top five um dying is easy young man living is harder mm. there's something so poetic about that because on one hand that's so doom and gloom but it it is true like in a war dying is the easy part you can just walk into a field and get shot and die. Like, that's easy to do, right? But it's living through it that's much, much harder. And I love that because it takes something that immediately sounds incorrect or wrong. But when you think about it, you're like, man, that's exactly it. And some, this isn't a Hamilton-specific thing. I don't think it is a accident or a coincidence that almost every single big pop culture zeitgeist thing whether it's a movie whether it's a tv show regardless of what it is has some point where characters have to face death it's a universal mm -hmm. experience and a universal realization right almost all the religions of the world have a version of what happens to you after death it's a very unique human thing to think about that Right, so Harry Potter, another big cultural thing, tackles death in a variety of ways. Um, even the Avengers, right? The Avengers Endgame, I don't want to spoil anything, tackles death. Hamilton has this moment here where you are getting the smarter, older, wiser. Like if you're on the hero's journey, this is your Dumbledore in 
in Hamilton giving you the talk about death that happens seemingly in every single big cultural phenomenon. There's some point where these characters have to confront the reality of death and how they're going to deal with it. And, and the, the dying is easy. Young man living is harder. Every time, every time I listen to this, it really sticks with me. It's an incredible line um, to, to, to give Hamilton that same confrontation with death. That's Game of Thrones is another one that confronts death a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And how characters are going to deal with it. And so I just, it's incredibly done in this musical to be different, but I don't think it's an accident that that part's sticking out to me because I think it's a common theme in all of the, the most popular things that we listen to and read and watch. I think it's a show guiding idea. I think that it's a concept that is felt throughout the entire show. I think that you're shrewd to single it out i also think it's i think it's the lesson that not through that so hamilton learns this lesson through words from washington and i think that hamilton teaches burr this lesson through actions sure yeah i I think that later sorry uh no go ahead I was going to say, we also get Burr later with the, the next thing that really sticks out for me. It's more of a song, so I, I'm not putting it in like a line ranking, right? But death doesn't discriminate, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a, Burr has his moment later to face death later. And at the end, when he's like, you're not going to make an orphan of my daughter. Right? There's a lo- this is the first time it's really happening. And I think this is done in such a poetic, poignant way, which is why it sticks out to me. But yeah, Burr's going to have plenty of time later in the musical to confront death in this same way. Mm-hmm. but also to struggle with his life you know when hamilton you could say he forfeited the duel dying oh. was easy burr living with that was much it's harder hard. it, that's what i mean though is it's so poignant and resonant that's exactly right is that the end yeah. living with that for burr was harder than it was for hamilton to die that's exactly what it is. In this case, it's it's presented in a war sense, like in this upcoming battle, dying is going to be easy, living and winning is going to be harder is kind of, but yes, that's exactly right. And I don't think that's an accident that that's so resonant with me, because I think it, it perfectly fits so many of my favorite stories. Yeah, no, I, I, I do think it's completely intentional. And I think that it's successful. I think it works well. It resonates with me, at least. Yeah, and Hamilton's even like, why are you telling me this? Like, dude, I just want to fight, man. Like, why? Yeah. I'm already willing to die. Like, why are you going on this? <laughs> why? Are, I, I already know dying is easy, dude. I'm trying to live here. Like, I, I'll, I'll die, but, like, I'm trying to help you win. And so the Washington's like, I'm being honest. I'm just like, this is, it, it goes back to Washington trying to, to just be a human person who's mm-hmm. not on a, he's like, be, it's like, he's like, I, I'm getting frustrated talking about it. Like, he is, like, pent up. Like, like, fuck, I can't deal with this. There's no people. People are, people are like disobeying their command, right? Later he talks about um, having to, I can't remember the, the lines right in front of me. He goes over how he, his battle plans um, for the, the battle that they're losing right now and how they had to retreat from New York. He's like, I got no, we're outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned. We're all of it. And I can't deal with that. And mm-hmm. so I, I like that he's just being honest with Hamilton. Like, hey, I'm just a dude who can't invent, I can't invent solutions to these problems out of midair. But what I can do is hire you to help me. So, and then he, then the quill moment happens. Yeah, I'm gonna do that, and that's a, that's a turning point for Hamilton, and a, an important one because up to that, he's just been like, yeah, what are you talking about? I just got my insurrectionist starter kit. I'm ready to go. 
I want to go shoot stuff. Let's go. You know? I stole 20 cannons, dude. I'm ready. I'm in. I even went back for my gun, sir. I even went back yeah. for Mulligan. Mulligan was telling me to hurry up, but I said, no, Hercules. I need my weapon. Sorry. I, We're waiting. I love your I love your notes here about Hamilton's ideas after okay, grabbing I, the quill. Will you permit me to just just go are over you just this, gonna are you this, gonna read them verbatim this action plan i'll read them verbatim i wrote them how i felt about them so this is hamilton's and this is part of the music the magic of musical theater that we talked about last episode right this is not a serious plan but hamilton is about to pretend like he fucking invented warfare here this is Hamilton's plan. So he gets the quill. He's made his big choice that we still need to talk about. The quill is a big moment. But he gets the quill, and he's going. He's like, okay, what can I do to help Washington? I got, like, three friends. They're super cool. We all got matching coats. I met them a couple times for bevies at the pub. I can definitely trust them. I got those three friends. That's perfect. They're good at war stuff. Let's rock and roll, baby. We got four people who know what they're doing. And then what do we need? Information? Yes, spies. Yes, we need a spy on the inside. One singular spy will do. Uh, Hercules Mulligan, I just need you to get information for me. Yep, that's perfect. And what's next? Oh, yes. Have you tried writing to Congress for any of your issues? Washington? General Washington, sir. Have you tried just writing down your concerns to Congress? Of course he has, Hamilton. Like, come on, man. Be better than this. This is a terrible plan. Or it's a great plan. It's a good plan. But it's basic. It's a basic starter kit. <laughs> like, we need... He, Washington's not hiring you, Hamilton, to come up with writing to Congress. Right? Washington's not hiring you, Hamilton, to come up with spies. Right? <laughs> Think bigger. Think out of outside the box, man. Come on. Sorry, that's my rant about this plan. But in the moment, and referencing what you said about the magic of musical theater, the momentum carries you forward. The, oh, it's the orchestration, dude. you just, you buy in so wholeheartedly. Oh, 100%. It does work. This is just me actually reading the lyrics and having a funny take on it. This and is I'm like, with you. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm, the podcast I'm with has you. to be analytical and funny. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's I'm the not funny disagreeing. Yeah, I just a, think it's. it's it's a basic plan. Hamilton is not hired. I could have come up with that. Washington could have hired me, and I would have come up with that. I got three friends, a spy, and, like, have you tried writing to Congress? <laughs> come on, dude. Sorry. <laughs> I have to talk about Howell here a little bit, um, because I think that the the lighting design in this number is part of what sells that moment, right? You know? Oh, your lighting design comments are, are sweet. Go for it. Lay oh, them out. Well, well, thank you. Um, you know, we you start in such a low, cool place, and things look bleak, and that's that's even referenced in Washington's lines, right? You know, every chance or every hope for success is fleeting. Um, how can I uh, something win while the people are retreating? You know, I'm paraphrasing, but. And it starts in this very low place that also references the New York Harbor that the 32,000 troops are in. And it and, and for the most part, we, we kind of live in that low place throughout this song until we get to Washington's office, which warms up a bit to, which is usually a, um, a very good reference to being in an interior, uh, is to, to reference candlelight or incandescent sources you warm up the palette a little bit there's still that cool backlight on washington 
um, to highlight him from the rest of the ensemble, but also, I think, metaphorically in the lighting design to suggest that there's darkness at Washington's back. There's, there's still the chance to lose all hope. There's still danger. And after Hamilton takes the quill, things start warming up. The lighting composition expands to include more of the ensemble that are included in the orchestration now. And with the exception of setting up some contrast between the ensemble and Washington and Hamilton and setting up some contrast for the button at the end of the number, we, we occupy that warm space throughout for the, for the rest of the number on Washington and Hamilton, at least, you know, this is, this is the dawn of a new day and going from the, the coldness of the opening of the number into this bright, warm, airy feeling that, that we get into after the union of Washington and Hamilton is, is made is just really, really effective shorthand from Howell Binkley here. And it's, it's, it's subtle. There's a lot of moments in this show that are huge, bombastic lighting shifts that you can't help but notice. Um, they're amazing. But this, this is amazing in a different way. I think it's elegant. And I think that it's essential to communicating that now that Washington and Hamilton are linked up, there's hope. Yeah, I think the lighting, right? Like, I'm just not as... I'm just not as kind of ready to notice it as you are. I don't think as a viewer, I think the lighting for me in this song comes across a lot like editing does in like a TV show in that it's amazing until it's bad. And you only really notice it if it's bad, right? Making, Mm -hmm. making something subtly, like when you're watching a movie, you don't go, man, this was edited incredibly. Even if it is, you'll only ever notice it if the editing was terrible. And you're like, what, what was that editing? I think the lighting of this song is so subtly good that I would only ever even be able to point it out if it was terrible. Well, in, that's in a that's almost kind of way. That's like yeah, me trying that, to compliment it. That's almost a universal truth, right? If the if the lighting or sound designer is mentioned by name in the review of a play, they biffed something. <laughs> yeah, right? you only like we, get the review of the lighting if it's bad. Yeah, we don't we don't want to be noticed. I mean, but, I mean, truly, like that's a, that's a common running joke. You know, it's like if the if the lighting or sound were were mentioned, they did something wrong. And that's that's not to say that that every theater critic doesn't appreciate what we do. It's just that few do. You know, because if we're doing our job right, we impact you and we impact your interpretation of the show without you noticing that we've without you done noticing, so. That's kind of the, right? the lighting isn't the star of the show. Lin-Manuel yeah. as Hamilton is, but the lighting helps inform his character. Yeah, exactly. What, our efforts should exist in the back of your mind, not in the front of it. Right. And I think that this is an example of, you know, maybe now that I've pointed it out, right. Maybe you and uh, our two listeners, maybe they'll watch it again <laughs> and think, you know, oh, I never noticed that before, but now I do. Now I understand how it affects how I watch the play. Right. But for me, whether you notice it or not, I know it's effective because I know what's, what's going on here subliminally. And, and this, this, the story that's told here with texture and color in the lighting design is like i said subtle but elegant and very powerful 
perfect. All right, I have two more things I want to talk about with this song, and then I, I'm not sure how many more you've got. The first is shouts to our guys, uh, Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox, uh, Wash- mm-hmm. or not Washington, Hamilton, uh, turning them down because he doesn't want to be a secretary for them, only to pretty much be a secretary for Washington. This is sick. It's like two songs later where he's saying that he's taken over writing all of Washington's <laughs> correspondence and begging for a command because he hates it. So uh, mm-hmm. Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox got to feel bad that Hamilton didn't want to be their secretary and then just went off to be a secretary somewhere else. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, good work. Good work, Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox. Well done. The next thing I want to talk about is just the, quill, <laughs> just the quill moment. I think the quill moment needs its own little section in the podcast. There's so much of this song I'm going to forget to talk about or not mention, but the quill moment is huge. First off, very effective use of a prop, the lighting, the ensemble, all of it. But this is the moment where Hamilton fully, he's already committed, you know that, but this is kind of like taking an oath. This is like the play's version or the musical's version of him taking an oath that he is fully committed to this. And that's mm-hmm. what the quill is to me. And I just wanted to, to shout that out because it's a small moment in terms of how much time it takes up, like 10 seconds. But it it's a huge moment in terms of how we feel, where this is going, the momentum, Hamilton's character. This 10 seconds where, where the ensemble's reminding him about his shot and the quill's out there and, and Washington's like, so? Like, are, are you going to do this? And Hamilton has to choose then and there. Very effective moment for me. Very effective. Mm-hmm. And it it proves him right. It turns out that there is a war, and now this is a chance for him to prove himself. He he may uh, begrudge the chance being a secretary, but in this instance, <laughs> I guess with Washington, he's willing. You know, yeah, to be their secretary, I don't think so. Except for you, sir. I'll be your <laughs> fucking hell, man. Sorry. My under- my my understanding is that Knox particularly did not get along with Hamilton, though. Yeah, I also fully understand that being Washington secretary is like a position of honor and renown, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that being Knox's and Green secretary is not. I understand the difference. I just think it's funny. Yeah, For, I think like, if from you're... from the point of view of Nathaniel Green, you're like, what? Come on, I want yeah. him, Washington. Like, get out of here. Well, and there's also there's a certain degree of like with with the other guys being their secretary is assistant to the regional manager. But if you're working with Washington, you're the assistant regional, regional manager. manager. Yeah, that's the difference. I understand that. I just want to take a moment that for to, to pour one out for Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox and their egos and they're continuing searches for secretaries, because this one has to stay. That's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm sure they appreciate it, mate. They need love. And this podcast is three hours already, or close to. That's fine. <laughs> That's okay. But we're not finishing until Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox get their shout out. Yeah, but now they're going to have to wrestle with being saved for last. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, they're at the end of the three hours. I would argue this is the most... This is the most beefy like it's good to save i think this song is the the most complicated one to analyze i think it's a good one to go last there's there's going to be so much that i missed and i'll probably reference back to it as we go along but i think i'm good for right hand man in terms of how i feel about it and everything i wanted to analyze what do you got left in the tank that's about it i'm just making sure i don't have any leftovers i'm just quickly scrolling up and down the notes frantically yeah, you and me both, buddy. No, nah, I'm good. I think that there's a lot to discuss going going on here, but I think that the 
the broader and medium strokes we've covered very well. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give myself two two little pats on the back. I got there, it. Two, I've done two it. pats on the back. I'm positive there's not another Hamilton podcast bold enough to run for more than two hours. I'm positive we're the only one. So I will I will I will sit in it. I will embrace that this is a long form podcast. And we will I just... gave myself a pat for each one of our two listeners. <laughs> and each one of our two hours. Yeah, they're good. If we're <laughs> two is the theme. All right. I think that's it. If we're good to go, outro time. Outro time. Get us out of this hell. <laughs> All right, this episode of Let's Dive Deep was brought to you by Hamilton's genius plan and the egos of Henry Knox and Nathaniel Green. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on our deep dive today. Just a reminder, before we let you go, that you can head to Twitter, and you should head to Twitter because we need your answers on the Flotilla Battalion debate at Let's Dive Deep and our email address at letsdiveDeepPod at gmail.com. If you would like to express your battalion or flotilla remarks in a more long-form way, the email is a perfect way to do that. And if you guys send enough emails, like for the Bridgerton podcast, I got lots of emails. For this one, if you guys send your emails, we'll do some episodes in between the acts, like a Q&A. We'll talk about some of the things we missed or some of the things you noticed. So don't think that we won't bring your emails up, because we definitely will. In the next episode, we will be discussing songs 9 through 12, A Winter's Ball, Helpless, Satisfied, and the reprise of Story of Tonight. That is going to be probably our first six-hour episode. I have no idea. That's a big-in. That's a, that's a big-in. I don't even know how we're going to tackle that in a reasonable time frame. Uh, but we're going to try. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next one. <laughs>